Hello and welcome to episode two of The Great Movie Show. My name's Dave and I'm joined by my co-presenters Lloyd and Adam. Hello. Hello. This week we'll be talking about the sci-fi classic Blade Runner directed by Ridley Scott. Loosely based on the 1968 novel Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick, Blade Runner was originally released in the summer of 1982, months after the author died. It was Ridley Scott's follow-up to Alien. Written by Hampton Fancher and David Peoples with a working title of Dangerous Days, Blade Runner is set in a bleak, grimy, film noir future version of Los Angeles in 2019 and focuses on a former cop coming out of retirement to hunt down an escaped gang of Nexus 6 replicants, synthetic humans manufactured by the Terrell Corporation. Harrison Ford, who plays Rick Deckard, the eponymous Blade Runner, came into the role off the back of major success in Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Other actors in the running for the main role included Dustin Hoffman, Al Pacino, Nick Nolte and Burt Reynolds. The main villain of the movie, Roy Batty, the leader of the replicants, is played delightfully by Rutger Hauer. Although neither a critical or commercial success at the time, its appeal has grown over the years to the point where Blade Runner is now considered to be a sci-fi classic and the first major example of cyberpunk fiction. With an estimated budget of around $30 million, which equates to $76 million today, Blade Runner only recouped $26 million upon its initial release. Struggling to compete with the likes of E.T. and Rocky III, released the same summer of 1982. It was nominated for two Oscars for its art and visual effects, but won neither, despite the fact that its special effects are now considered to be amongst the best of all time. The evocative soundtrack by Greek electronic musician Vangelis, also known for Chariots of Fire, was groundbreaking in its fusion of electronic music with more contemporary styles. There are three major versions of the movie, the 1982 theatrical release, the 1992 director's cut, and the 2007 final cut, which Ridley Scott considers to be the definitive version. It also went on to spawn the much-awaited sequel, Blade Runner 2049, released 35 years after the original. There are some significant differences between each of the versions of Blade Runner, which I'm sure we'll discuss in more detail in this week's episode of The Great Movie Show, which is entitled, I've Seen Things You People Wouldn't Believe, a line from Rutger Hauer's now iconic Tears in the Rain monologue during the movie's climax on a grimy Los Angeles rooftop. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Okay, this week's first feature is called Six Degrees. Um, we forgot to mention it in last week's show. Um, you may have heard of the, the, the famous game Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. It's essentially the same thing. We're going to link from the previous week's movie to this week's movie, jumping from one actor to the next through shared movies that both actors were in. So obviously last week's movie was Die Hard. This week's movie is Blade Runner. So we're going to go through myself, Lloyd and Adam. We're going to find out how we've all decided to, to jump from last week's movie to this week's movie. So uh, over to you, Lloyd. Uh, yes. Done? So uh, I kind of themed it with, a film I believe is heavily influenced uh, by Blade Runner. Um, there's only one step um, to this. Um, it loses the sort of noir aspect, but a lot of the technology and the the world and the universe in which they're operating, I believe is just, it's really a lot of it is inspired by it. It was uh, directed by Luc Besson and it's the, uh, the fifth element. So we've got Bruce Willis from Die it. Hard. 
Bruce Willis was in the fifth element where the cars are basically lifted directly from Blade Runner, the yeah. massive apartment blocks where everyone's living. It seems a bit, of a bit of a brighter world, but yeah, a lot of the tech in there. Um, the feel's completely different, granted, but a lot of things were lifted straight from it. So we've got Bruce Willis, Die Hard to Fifth Element. Then we've got Brian James, Fifth Element. He was um, uh, Monroe. He was uh, one of the uh, the army chaps at the beginning. Um, yeah. And he's obviously um, Leon Kowalski in uh, in Blade Runner. Um, well, I went obviously a traditional way from um, a great action movie to a neo noir classic by uh, the theme of 1980s comedy movies. Uh, okay. So... <laughs> Let me just stop you there. Then. We may have some similar ones between us then in that case, but carry on. Sorry. Um, I um, realized that um, Carl um, Godenough, who, uh, sorry, Alexander Godenough, who plays Carl. Um, is Max in the Money Pit with um, Tom uh, Hanks and Shelley Long. Um, okay. And I was thinking there's loads of different links with Tom Hanks and a number of actors um, on both sides, but I wanted to do it the traditional six um, steps. So um, I was thinking about Art Shirk, who's in there, you know, the Shirk brothers who fix the house or don't fix the house particularly quickly, and that's played by um, Joe Mantegna. Um, he's also in, I think, CSI. Um, and um, he plays Harry Flugelman in The Three Amigos. Right. Um, also in The Three Amigos is uh, Chevy Chase playing Dusty Bottoms. Um, yeah. And then I moved from Chevy Chase um, to Emmett Fitzhume. You might remember him being in Spies Like Us with Dan Aykroyd. Uh, Dan Aykroyd um, played Austin Milbarge, I think it was. Um uh, a feature that will often come up in um, this particular um, show, I imagine, is uh, Ghostbusters. Um, we've got Ray Stance, Dan Aykroyd, uh, in Ghostbusters. Yeah. And then um, Peter Venkman, um, played by Bill Murray. And the main reason I wanted to get um, to Bill Murray is I wanted to get to John Winger in Stripes. Because Stripes, when I was younger, was actually one of my uh, favorite movies. I tried to get there with John Candy, and you can do it through National Lampoon's. Um, which he starred yeah. in with Chevy Chase. Yeah. Um, but I decided to do it um, using um, Stripes so we could go to Louise. Um, Sean Young plays Louise in Stripes. And of course, Louise, uh, Sean Young is also Rachel in Blade Runner. Okay, so mine, is, there's a fair, there's some similar themes to the, to, the, to the way you did yours. I would say, Adam, there were some similar kind of plot lines that I considered. I certainly made a note of, of Stripes and that, that connection there, but I didn't end up using it. So, and I also, me being me, I didn't want to didn't want to go from the major actor in either in either of the movies. I didn't want to go from Bruce Willis to Harrison Ford. If you know what I mean, I wanted to kind of stay with some of the more outside, some of the more minor roles. So I started with Reginald Val Johnson in Die Hard. <laughs> you said um, that again. Yeah, I said it the same as last week. Um, Reginald Val Johnson in Die Hard, who's obviously also in Ghostbusters, as we talked about. From where I pick up Rick Moranis, who's in Spaceballs. He's in Spaceballs nice. with John Candy, who's in National Lampoon's Vacation. With Eugene Levy, nice. who's in Splash. With Daryl yeah. Hannah, Hannah, who plays Pris nice. in Blade Runner. So to summarise, I went Die Hard, Reginald Bell Johnson, Ghostbusters, Rick Moranis, Spaceballs, John Candy, National Lampoon's Vacation, Eugene Levy. 
Splash, Daryl Hannah, and then we're into Blade Runner. So six different movies, including Die Hard and Blade Runner. That makes sense. And we, we probably need to come up with a consistent way of expressing this. <laughs> yeah. And um, and we we all know the um the one film that uh, links even faster than Lloyd's um, Luke Besson one is Expendables, isn't it? Yeah, Expendables three. Yeah. yeah, only because Harrison Ford was was no Bruce Willis was sacked and replaced by Harrison Ford. Is that what happened? Yeah, apparently. Um, although I don't know how true this is. Apparently, Bruce Willis was charging a million dollars a day for his time, so they just said we don't need you anymore. <laughs> that feature is currently called Six Degrees. Um, we probably could do with a better name than that. If anyone's got any suggestions, feel free to leave them in the comments. Okay, so now moving back to the main top of this of this week's show, which is Blade Runner. Um, obviously, in last week's episode, Die Hard, I'd never seen Die Hard. So the focus was really on me about my first impressions. Blade Runner is slightly different in that we have all seen it previously, but I understand that one of us has seen it less than the others. So do you want to say something about that, Lloyd? Yeah, so obviously um, I've seen it at some point. It's a classic movie. Um, it was released when we were, what, three, something like that. So it's kind of been there when we've come of age and started seeking out good movies. Um, we, we've all come across, haven't we? So, uh, But I've, I've watched it a couple of times, probably 20 years ago. In fact, I remember owning it on DVD. Um, but I just never really paid that much attention to it. And I can't remember. I can remember the rough storyline. I can't remember um, some of the major points. I couldn't really really look back on any scene that was memorable to me at the time. Um, mm. And I've tried to watch it since, but it's just one of those where it's it's so niche in the type of film it is. You've got to be in the right mm. mood, the right situation. Um, it's not something that, um, that Emma would want to watch with me. So I've either got to watch it late at night where I found I've fallen asleep a couple of times or just watching it in segments, which doesn't do the film justice. That, that's kind of what you do as a, as a dad as well. You just watch bits in segments and just link it all together after the fact. But it just, it doesn't, the film needs to flow. It needs to be, uh, it, you need to, to build it up and, and experience the whole thing yeah. as it builds. So, uh, yeah, I, I realised that it, it's a big gap in um, my recent movie watches. So I've gone back and revisited it and I've since okay. watched um, the theatrical release and also i found i had the uh, i had the final cut on blu-ray in my, my blu-ray collection so i must have bought i okay. bought that at some point with the intention to watch it and then it's just okay. sat there for however many years just with, yeah. without the opportunity okay so this week i mean this week we might as well go around go around the room so to speak i've watched um the theatrical release and final cut you've watched the same lloyd as you just said yes that's yeah, right yeah. adam you're bringing director's cut to the table as well. Did you rewatch it this week? Yeah, uh, I only watched about half of it. I um, I've seen director's cut a few times. Um, I rewatched the theatrical. I actually watched theatrical cut um, on one screen whilst simultaneously watching final cut to see how much um, there were in terms of differences. It's quite interesting if you if you remember the director's cut to see how it's. Um, changed to the, the director's cut and a lot has changed back to the final cut. Um, obviously, okay. still lots of differences between the theatrical and the final cut. Um, yeah. But there's that. Um, and I've also watched um, Blade Runner 2049, which I hadn't seen until 
day before yesterday. Um, okay. I don't know what it was about that either, um, but I was I was really impressed with uh, the follow up or the sequel, however you want to call it. No, okay. no spoilers on that, please, because I've again just going back to what I was saying about watching Blade Runner. I've I've had Blade Runner twenty forty nine there for a while now, and again I've seen the first half an hour probably about seven times so far. And I didn't want to maybe some spoilers to explain some of the stuff. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So there's a couple of bits at the start which I can, even with my limited knowledge of the original films, because I hadn't watched them recently. When watching Blade Runner twenty forty nine, I was able to piece it back to the original. But Mm. yeah, I've just watched the the first half an hour, and I want to watch that in one go, which I will do at some point. But yes, seven times I've, I've tried to watch it, and I've either been interrupted or or something's happened. So. Uh, yeah, don't give too much away if it if it's going to um, detract from my watch. Okay, so for the purposes of when I'm talking today, I'm going to be calling out differences between theatrical version and final cut. But feel free to interject, Adam, if you can add something about the okay. director's cut that's different again. So I guess first question to you, Lloyd, would be which version of the movie did you prefer and for what reason? If you uh, did have a preference, yeah. Do you know what? There's I preferred the final cut because the voiceover was gone. Okay. I didn't like a couple of other bits um, or one main sort of addition to the final cut. Um, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. So the first thing, the voiceover, I, I get it from the original because it's it's that film it's that film noir with the detective. You know, it was one of those weeks where everything was going wrong. I had this bad case and da-da-da. And, you know, one of those. And it kind of it yeah. fit into that. But... At the same time, listening to it, it sounded like Harrison Ford just did not give a monkeys about doing it. It was, I, I don't that's to, maybe that's totally true. That's totally true. Right. He, he he was dead against the idea of doing a voiceover. Okay, uh, as was Ridley Scott. It was forced upon them by the studio executives or the producers that watched the movie. He said it was a confusing mess. No one could follow what was going on, and they forced him to do a voiceover. Um, Harrison Ford basically did it with a gun to his head. We right. went and spent a day off, a couple of days in the studio with some guy I'd never met before. He was basically writing this this voiceover on the fly. And I agree what you're saying about the, the film noir vibe, but I think to me it comes across he was really disinterested, like you said. I think. Definitely. Abs- absolutely, David. So Harrison Ford is an amazing actor. I don't know what yeah. his voice acting's like. I don't know if he's done any animation films off the top of my head. In fact, he has. He did uh, Secret Life of Pets too. So he knows how to, you know, deliver his, his acting yeah. prowess through just voice. But it it wasn't. I know Decker, Deckard's dry, <laughs> and it's you know he's he's considered, and but it just sounded like he was yeah, uh, uh, like just disinterested. It's a know, completely uh, different voice. It's a completely different voice. Yeah. He delivers yeah, a voice over right. a completely different voice, and I almost think he did it so so badly in order to try and sabotage so that they actually wouldn't use it. That's yeah. my view. It's crazy. Um, like, I, I purposely not. I wanted to just like absorb the films, and, and I have some weird sort of points of view on films. So I wanted to do that, and I purposely not looked at anything else, like any Google theories or any. I haven't watched the documentary, uh, Dangerous Days documentary, or anything like that. But I remember I was just watching it and just thinking, and I couldn't remember this from twenty years ago. But the other day when I watched it from start to finish, gave it the the attention it deserved, and it was just yeah, it was just. I didn't know if he was just being really poor at it or if he just was really just so like completely like miffed off with, with completely doing it and and then bringing I, that across in his performance 
what I didn't under quite understand is what the studio thought it was really adding. I can see how they thought it was um, trying to remind the viewer of something or tease out something which we'd already seen, which maybe they thought people hadn't realized. But beyond referring to an ex-wife, which at no point appears in the movie otherwise, um, I don't see what it adds in terms of backstory or additional information that you can't learn from the film with it, with certainly one watch, but any more than that. Yeah, it started like the first, I think the first voiceover is at the noodle bar, isn't he? And it's kind of just, it's mm. given us, I was a cop and I retired and then I was this. And it's like, do we need that really? And it detracts a little bit from the from the scene. It's all this amazing soundstage. Well, actually, it was in the open air, wasn't it? With the rain coming down and yeah. so many extras and all these things going on. And you just yeah. hear his voiceover and it takes... And it, it's, it was very simplistic as well. And there was some stuff we didn't need. I can, you, you say in there, Dave, there's some fella writing it as he was reading it. There was a bit about Gaff saying he was brown-nosing because he was after promotion, so he wouldn't care about X, Y, and Z. It's like, this adds zero to the film. Yeah, it does. It's, it's not giving I me think, anything whatsoever. I think that was probably important to create a tension between him and Gaff, which perhaps isn't completely evident, which is necessary for later on in the movie when... Yeah. As we go on to talk about, Gaff yeah, was yeah. basically trying to insinuate to the audience that replica that Deckard's a replicant, isn't he? Which you may not have picked up on, but we'll talk about that later. Yeah, I, I did in Final Cut in the original. No, the unicorn stuff. I mean, we'll talk about. Yeah, it but there's no, the there's no other. I know unicorn's mythical, and you got the origami one at the end. Yeah, but you haven't got this. You haven't got the shot of him dreaming of her or. Thinking of him, he's got this weird memory of a unicorn. You know, it's you haven't got that in the original theatrical. No. I'm, also, I'm also, if you that. also that that my view on that is, if you 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 have to presuppose that the unicorn implant is unique to Deckard, because if it's uh, if it's an implant in some or all replicants, then mm. it could just be a message about him running off with a replicant. Well, yeah, I, I saw it in, when I was watching the theatrical one without the, the memory of the unicorn, where Gaff's been to the apartment and, and Harrison Ford knows he's been there, but he's not killed Rachel because Rachel's there. And he's kind of just given his blessing, like, basically, I ain't going to follow you. You know, I've been here, I know she's there. It's, it's almost like, yeah, giving his blessing to Deckard. Hmm. It's like, it's I just actually think there card, are better, that there are kind of better... Um suggestions by gaff over and above the the unicorn i think um you know he said something like you know you did it like a man and the way he delivers that line you could imply more that that was him suggesting he's not a man um than the unicorn but i'm sure there's a few things that we can talk about in terms of that particular sort of theme yeah sure but yeah, so back to back to your question dave i preferred the final cut um, because it lost the voiceover. There's nice little bits there as well. There's there's a few seconds of lingering looks and lack mm. of dialogue mm. where you just yeah. kind of sense in the vibe or the tension in the More scene. Which, yeah, within the original yeah. cut, that nice few seconds with no dialogue, maybe even seven, eight seconds, but nothing's really happening. You've got a, a voiceover filling it, so you, you lose a little bit of that tension from the, from the visuals okay. and from what's actually happening. Um I didn't like, I don't know, I interpret the movie a certain way and I didn't like the unicorn 
memory. I know Ridley wanted it in, but I didn't like it. Uh, so that's the one aspect of the final cut I didn't like. Okay. Um, I want to ask you and Adam, I suppose, um, and it's hard to say now in hindsight, but do you think that you would have un- understood, if you'd never seen the theatrical release, do you think the final final cut would still have made sense? Do you yes. think the voiceover does that gives yeah. anything in terms of sorry the, the voiceover just makes it a very simplistic a to b to c and it yeah. detracts from the what the film is it's mm. it, it, it it's it's an amazing masterpiece where you don't need that simplification which which is what the voiceover is and it makes mm. it feel a very short film with the voiceover because you know it's spelled out to you what's happening you're not drawing mm. the dots in your head and it's a very very clear it just feels short. It's set piece to set piece to set piece to end in. Mm. With, with, with these, whereas the final cut, you're thinking, right, what's going on here? Why is that? And you, you're actually piecing it together yourself, which is which is almost like reading a book, isn't it? Where you're piecing it together yeah. and picturing in your head. And it, it's affording you the ability to do that, I think, with the final cut. Um, so I, I would have known what was going on. I, I you know, pieced it, would have pieced it together anyway. I don't think the voiceover just makes it very simple. And it can people who might not have understood the movie, watching it without, yeah, it, it gives them a passport to enjoy it, basically. But to to you know to us, you know, where we like to just absorb the film and you know and, and follow it all through and think about what's going on, I I I, I would have understood it definitely. No, I think it kind of um, undoes the intelligence of the film having things explained back to you. Um, that that you know part of the film is you not knowing something and you trying to figure it out and the fact that different people talk about it and di- come to different conclusions is kind of the point of the film in on some levels and i'm sure dave you'll start talking about it at some point you know you know one actor says definitely not a replicant director says this writer or screenwriter says another the fact that there's not actually any particular um framework even in the production allows the viewer to draw their own conclusions and i think the problem with the the way in which the theatrical version deals with it and the ending as well which i'm sure you'll come to um it kind of destroys some of that kind of um thought process and um it's you know the spe- like i think lloyd sort of touched on it the sort of space between things is quite important from a, a pacing perspective you know i think of some like dances with wolves you know if you put a sardonic uh, voiceover at some of those points when you know that you've got those sprawling views um, it would just sort of undermine the whole point of it to me. Dances with Wolves has got voiceover though, hasn't it? I know, and that's why I was, I was being but, but, ironic. But, in, but, in, <laughs> but in, the, in the right places. Mm. It's not but just... done properly, done by somebody who wants to do it and by a director yeah. who wants it to happen. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it worked well. But yeah, so it does... It, it, dumb, it almost makes it feel like it's dumbed down. By having the voiceover, yeah, I think uh, I think that the studio possibly thought they had the next Star Wars on the hands, which it wasn't, and they needed they panicked and wanted to have more mass appeal, I think, yeah. or make it more accessible, something like that. I'm not sure. I I saw an interview with Ridley Scott in which he said that he agreed to it. I mean, but I think the alternative was to pull the plug on the movie. So right, there wasn't really a choice to make, to be honest. No, he always hated it, and that's why he took it out when once he got. Um, creative control of it was that back in the time when Ridley Scott looked like Brian Cranston <laughs> yeah yeah okay 
So, um, okay, talking about the other differences, I suppose, between the theatrical version and the final cut, are there any others that you remember or took a note of for whatever reason? I th- I think I noticed one, but I could probably wrong. There was a couple of bits when I was watching going, did I see that in the original? When mm. Leon is getting uh, interviewed by that first Blade Runner, um, Holden, mm. at uh, Tyrell. Yeah. There's a shot from outside the pyramid of the windows. Right. Okay. And it's as if they've got the special effects to do it then. I couldn't remember that from the original, but don't, I'll have to go back and rewatch the original now. I think I think that's the same side by side. I think the first thing I noticed was about um, possibly even the voiceover eight minutes in um, was the first proper proper change that I noticed watching them side by side. Um, obviously, the ending's different. Um, yeah, <laughs> there's there's one the, the one one thing that I was really annoyed about when I rewatched the theatrical version, which is the first goof. Um, or I think it's a major goof. Um, when Leon knocks on effectively the phone box that Roy Batty's in, you know, the big reveal of you first see Roy for the first time, it's actually mm. the shot from when he's with Tyr- Tyrell at the end. Because right. if you look carefully, you can actually see Tyrell's thumb, you know, when he's sort of just like got his hand on him at the end of the movie, as in, you know, yeah. my son kind of scenario. Mm. You can actually see the thumb. So they've just used that, and I think they reversed the shot, if you know what I mean. So they use, you know, the, the reverse mm-hmm. side footage, but they either zoom in or crop it or something, and you can't see it on the final cut version. But it's well worth watching. Twenty-four, five minutes into the movie, never noticed that. Okay, I tell you what, what I made a note of because I, I noted this watching the original, and then I thought, right, did, right, let's just double check. So when I was watching final cut, I listened very intently again. And they changed it in the final cut. So he goes in to see Bryant takes him in, or, or Gaff takes him in to see Bryant. So Deckard's there. And it's like, right, I've got these these four skin jobs on Earth. And he's talking about, um, so there's, we found this shuttle. Six of them had escaped, killed these people on the shuttle. They've come down. They've actually tried to infiltrate Tyrell. Um, so six of them infiltrating. One of them got fried running through an electricity field or something like that. And now we've got four left. So that adds up to five, obviously. Famous goof. Uh, Famous goof. Yeah. So in the final cut, Bryant actually says, and it, I think I checked, he was off screen, so they've just changed the... Two of them got fried. Yeah, yeah, two got fried running through the electricity field. Do you want to know why is that, that is? Just... Sorry? So, so one, of the, one of the other actresses that auditioned for the role of Chris but didn't get it, they offered her the role of a replicant and she would have filmed scenes showing right. her death. But they ran out of time and money and schedule ran out of time in the schedule, so they had to cut those scenes. But they must have already have shot the scenes in which those numbers but, were used earlier on. But he, he shot the scene saying six, one's got fried, and there's four left. <laughs> so that was already a misnomer of oh, right. maybe, they were, maybe they're just gonna use her as running through the as poor maths. Yeah. But they changed it anyway to yeah, yeah two got fried. Mm-hmm. Um because it was three gar- three guys, three girls. Yeah. And two got fried, so it would have been one guy, one girl. Okay. Um, so I noticed that. And yeah, but they, they, they picked up. And obviously, the, there's when he's falling asleep on the. No, when he's just on the piano hitting that one note. Um, yeah. And he, he has the the image, the, the memory of the unicorn yeah. running through. I hate, so I, hate you, I think you, you mentioned earlier, you seem to understand the significance of the unicorn. Um, I just. I pieced it together with the origami at the end. Yeah, Scaff's way of saying I, I know, but but he do, does he know? 
he doesn't know, but it's yeah. a hint, it's a suggestion. It's, it's like, to me, this seems like it, it was never intended by Ridley Scott to have it that way. It's like Lucas, when George Lucas is doing all these other Star Wars films, oh yeah, I always intended it to be this way, and it was always going to be linked up, and it wasn't. He's just based on the back of a fag packet doing the new movie, linking everything up, and it just it feels as if it's that's what's happened here. It wasn't new footage though. The footage was always shot at the time. He didn't he didn't film it twenty years later and put it into the final cut. It what, was when just he taken out. When yeah, he filmed the unicorn. The unicorn, the unicorn right, scene, okay. yeah. It, it was does, filmed. Isn't as if he intended it that way, I take it back because it does obviously link up to it. But without it, watching the original, it's basically just another it's just another origami piece, isn't it, by Gaff? Is that actually the um was that unicorn? Footage. I know it's not a real unicorn. Before you have a go at me, um, was that um, shot? Was that shot for yeah, that film? Shot, was that shot in Narnia? No, well, no, you you joke. No, because you joke. Because I was thinking it looked like. Do you remember Legends that Ridley Legend, Scott did with say uh, then, Tim yeah. Curry and Tom Cruise? Yeah. And I thought I was. I haven't watched it since, so I can't remember. But I thought that there was a unicorn. There's obviously unicorns in that because it's about the um, alicorn removal and and about. Yeah, there, is, trapping, there is. And Ridley, death. Ridley Scott addresses it in one of the documentaries. I think he tries to. He tries to kind of say that. It's been speculated that that was shot for another movie, but it wasn't. Yeah. I think he said test footage, though. It might have been test footage, but he ended up using it anyway. But um, I was reading, Dave, of- that um, I was reading that you know Philip K. Dick definitely um, had um, Deckard as a human, um, and that the only reason why this arose that he might be a replicant was apparently that was it Fancher and the other screenwriter were they were they were going backwards and forwards with some ideas and then one misunderstood what the other one had said and thought he was saying something along the lines of are you a replicant and they I got the impression from that bit of information that maybe they built in that ambiguity a bit more into the screenplay um, and maybe maybe Ridley Scott's taken it that one step further and said. Yeah, he is a replicant. It shows screenwriting and stuff like they just come up with these stupid things because, like Deckard's situation, the, the replicants are purely for slave labor, where it's too risky to have a human, like exploration mm. to deep space or doing proper like dangerous tasks. And so they'd let they'd have one, put him in a cop's position where he does a full cop's career, retires to be a Blade Runner, retires again, and he's just like pottering around, and they've let a replicant do that, paying him a pension. Well, it's just it just doesn't sit. Plus, Tyrell, his experiment with these fake memories to make the replicant think they were real was Rachel, mm. and Tyrell yeah. says that himself. Yeah, Rachel yes, was the well, big experiment. So he's also done a, a he's done Deckard as a, as, a, as an experiment ten years ago. Well, well we, that would be the fan theory, I think, wouldn't it? Oh, it doesn't make sense. It's just like it's just such a ridiculous idea. Well, not an idea because obviously there's lots of things which link Deckard to being a replicant, but it just. It's like it's just these stupid things they put into movies to make it a bit more. Oh, I don't know. I just get I get I get a bit annoyed when I think about this. I think I you're right. Why. I don't know why. I think Hampton Fancher is adamant that Deckard is not a replicant and always has been, but because he actually co-wrote it with David Peoples, but they never actually sat in the same room. They were writing Peoples rewrote, didn't they? But independently. Yeah, so so you're right. Somewhere online, that ambiguity slipped in, and the Fancher didn't yeah. address it, and and Ridley Scott went with it. What what does annoy me in terms of replicants for Deckard? I noticed that all the replicants seem to get a sort of cat's eye retina effect during the movie, and then Deckard got one. I didn't notice it in the final cut again, but in the original theatrical 
cut yeah. when he's in his apartment. He gets a cat's eye effect. So I was like, oh, for God's sake. Does but, he though? But not in Does focus. Not in focus. He's intentionally yeah, He's in the background. Yeah, it's um, it's ambiguous. Yeah. Even that's ambiguous. It's not definitive. Right. I'm, I don't remember it being out of focus. I remember seeing it quite clearly. Yeah, he's in it's the background. Well, she's definitely red-eyed. Second. Yeah, it's worth talking about about the word replicant. For me, the word replicant almost feels like reptile or reptilian or lizard or something, or somebody that can you know duplicate themselves, or as you said, are a duplication. But the term replicant was never in the original novel to Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. It was something that um, Ridley Scott came up with because he just didn't want to use the word Android. He thought it would have been used to death, maybe trying to distance himself or distance Blade Runner from Alien in that respect. I don't know. Oh. So they, they coined that phrase specifically for the movie. T talking about that, I did. I picked up on something, but it's not It's not 100%. It felt there was a couple of shots, cityscape shots, where it felt a bit HR Geigerish towards right. the end. Right. There, was, there was a bit where Deckard's on the balcony. It's like a softened Geiger effect. Yeah. Um, but there was a shot towards the end, um, like the last third, the third act, and it was outside. And I felt this was a bit more Geiger. And then there was a yeah. there was a pillar with like a, an orb, like with swirling design on it, which I thought that oh, almost looks like an alien egg as well. Which is probably just completely coincidental. Right. There's like a story thought, about thought, those pillars. There's a story about those pillars. Right. They were used in in one in one scene. I think in the Tyrell offices where Rachel is. Um, and uh, the pillars I'm no, talking about used outside outside of the Bradbury building. The, yeah. the, the pillars and they're the right way around. But Ridley Scott really liked them and wanted to reuse them, so he got them to turn them upside down for one of those internal shots in Tyrell Corporation. All right, cool. Yeah. And the, the, the special effects people like. Dude, are you serious? You want us to do this? And he said, "Yeah." Did you but think just, the, um, the 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 bad overdub um, with um, is he called the snake? The snake maker is it Abdul, the snake maker oh, guy, yeah. and behind yeah. the glass, and n none of the dialogue is consistent with who's talking at the time. Right. And and I looked, and I think it's exactly the same. I think it's wrong on both the theatrical right. cut and was, on the on the final cut. No, they corrected it. They corrected it, and do you know what? They, do you know what? Do you know how they corrected it? No. This is amazing. They actually got Harrison Ford's son Ben in to do green screen and and redo the lines, and they basically really? put his his facial features out and superimposed it on his dad. They were both uh, age forty at the time when Harrison filmed Blade Runner and Ben redid that part for Blade Runner, and they even right. put a fake scar on his face, the same as what his dad's got. Did you did you think that scene when he's going in to see the Egyptian uh, snake um, snake handler, whatever you'd call it, snake salesman? Um, he taps on the glass, didn't he? I, I was wasn't yeah. sure if they can do a link to Raiders of the Lost Ark, as if it was going to be a hooded cobra in there or something. Uh, you know, behind yeah. the glass, um, but yeah. it didn't move anyway. He taps on it. Did you um, did you um, notice as well the um, difference between the two cuts? The the photograph of Zorro as well. Um, yeah, it's a yeah, it's a subtle one that I. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't. Jo is it I Joanna was, every Cassidy? Time I watched it, every time I watched it, and, and he'd do that, you know, pan left, whatever, zoom in, yeah. and he'd go around the corner. Goes around the corner. In the photo. I'd, always, I'd always go, who, who is that in the photograph? What's the relevance of that person to the plot? I just didn't yeah. get what it was. I, cl I clicked on yeah. Absora, but only because of the kind of yeah. the, that point of the movie, it's the way it's flowing. 
the the fact that Leon likes collecting photos and they that, that's a bit of a symbolistic thing they talk about um yeah. you know photos being put but what's interesting is Rachel's got photos that have been sort of given to her as a sort of manufactured memory mm. but Leon's got current photos to preserve his actual memories if that makes yeah. sense so yeah and I, I thought that was quite interesting that that he was sort of developing and he's only obviously they've only been there a week or two um but it's still very important. And I think, you know, Roy says your precious photos. Did you get your precious photos? So he's still, you know, he'd only been there for less than two weeks and he still wanted to go back and get that handful of photos because they were important to him. I thought that was quite an interesting issue. And also, obviously, a photo replicating a moment in time. Maybe that was sort of another symbolistic sort of aspect of the of the film. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to mention, call out a couple of other kind of significant differences between the theatrical release and Final Cut that you might, I don't know if you noticed or not. So I think quite famously, the scene where Zora gets shot and she basically, she's flailing and crashing through all yeah. that glass. It's really obviously not her during those glass Yeah, in the scenes. original, yeah. It's a stunt woman with a really terrible wig on. Yeah. So yeah. similar similar to what they did with Ben Ford, they actually got the original actress in and they basically had to match up the footage. They they filmed her face trying to be in, in the same position as she was in the original shots and they ended up superimposing it. So if you go back and watch it now, you might notice that, that it actually, well, it, it is the actress in those scenes. Oh, we're talking about Zora. There's another one when she's in the shape, you know, when um, Deckard's doing that silly voice and pretending to be from some yeah. organization. <laughs> and she's yeah. she's getting dressed and she puts her uh, boots and up. And the Department of them. Moral Values. <laughs> yeah. She puts her knee high boots up when she's tying them and it's got a big heel on it. Yet when she's running away, the boots have got no heel on them. Mm. So that's another continuity error. Okay. Hot quiz, um, hot shot. In what other movie does Harrison Ford do a stupid voice? Um, I don't know. It's one of the Indiana Jones ones. Yeah. yeah. Last Crusade, isn't it? Yeah. I can't remember the line. I was hoping you'd remember it. When he goes to the castle to rescue his dad and he puts on um, a Scottish accent and then sneezes on the guard. Okay, well, you yeah, can, we you can do that for us later, Lord. We've come to see the tapestries, that one. We're here to see <laughs> the tapestries. come to see the tapestries. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. Okay, nice little segue. Okay, and uh, the last <laughs> major change. So on... sarcastic, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> nice little segue, idiots. <laughs> okay, the last, uh, the last major change uh, between theatrical and final cut, which which certainly I noticed uh, this time around. I'll be honest, I didn't notice it previously. Yeah. I don't know why. I guess because I'd watched the theatrical and final cut so close together this time is the line when um, Roy goes to visit Terrell to ask yep. if he can have his life extended effectively, and then he murders him. Spoiler alert. Uh, and he says in the theatrical release, yourself, the line was, yourself. <laughs> I'm not going to say the word, but in the theatrical release, it was, I want more life ever. Yeah, in the final cut, they changed that, that line to, I want more life father, which works a lot better, actually. The swear mm -hmm. word kind of... I guess they're they're kind of resonant in different ways, but I think it worked better with the word father instead. Anyway, a bit more shocking, I suppose, with the other, with the other version. He was meeting his maker. He was meeting his god or his father or, or all those things, but he was yeah. also enraged by him. And in a weird yeah. sort of way, it's quite nice that we've got both those versions because one shows his kind of respect, is it, maybe? And the other one shows his just disdain for him. 
which yeah. you get in you get in the killing scene. I mean, yeah. I don't know if you took the same as me, but the moment that he kills Tyrell, he's not happy. He's not comfortable. He's excruciatingly uncomfortable, but enraged. Or there's so there's like so it's such a good acting scene. There must be about six different emotions all on his face, all at the same time, just yeah, in that short nice period scene. of time. Yeah. Um, one thing I was thinking as well is with Roy Batty, there was no. He's not a cold-blooded murderer. Yes, he's out of control because he's trying to get to his objective. There's no need for him to kill Jeff Sebastian. No, I thought that as well. He's running off. Roy's going to go and carry on with his little mission and go and yeah. you know go back to the apartment, or whatever, and wait for Deckett. But yeah. oh, oh, sorry, go back and see Pris. But then Jeff Sebastian runs off. Then you hear on the radio, yeah, body body found with Tyrell, twenty-five year old. And I was like, I, I don't know. It just he went down in my estimation for that because it. That doesn't seem like part of him. And they both Pris and Roy Batty seem to really like him and understand him. And you know, there's that symbolistic thing, wasn't there, as well, with him having that similar degenerative disease. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and sort of, you know, they're both. Yeah, they both have shortened lifespans. And and yeah, I agree, Lloyd. I thought actually, in a way, it would have shown some interesting level of humanity that he let him live but i wonder whether they they wanted that humanity to be just reserved Save for deckard it. at the end yeah 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 just he went down a mess. he's a very complex and impressive character roy batty and you know and rutger howard did it did an amazing job getting everything across um and it just it, it you let yourself down you let the movie down you let your family <laughs> down it just felt like that it's just like there's no need and i don't know if that's just me being it's human, the human element of me thinking and feeling sorry for the guy who did nothing but help. He killed that. That was the, it. Was the end bit? It's it's the it's the end, the final act. So he's killed yeah. Jeff Sebastian, mm. and then Deckard gets his address and goes yeah. there. And Pris is waiting, isn't she? Pretend with that veil over oh, her yeah, head. Yeah, yeah. Right, okay. the final. So bit. it's had to set up the confrontation with Pris then. It does, but why would he want? Why would Rutger Howe want to send him to? His girlfriend, because he obviously had something going with. It seemed like they had a connection, and I believe Leon had a connection with Zara, or Zora. Zora. Uh, Zora. Zora. Where are you this from? The way he, he kissed her. Just a vibe. The way he kissed her tongue. Yeah, I guess so. He was, and he, he was very upset about all of them when they were dying one by one, but he seemed to just have the more of a romantic thing um, with, with Pris. And the way that we, yeah, he kissed her when she when he arrived at Jeff Sebastian's, mm. where she went. This is my friend Roy. Kissed her then when she was dead, and she had the, the tongue. Uh, yeah, when she was dead, he sort of <laughs> kissed the tongue as well. So that just seemed a bit more than he seemed friends with them all, and he was genuinely upset when his crew yeah. were getting killed. But he seemed to be romantically entwined with her, and Leon just seemed to take a an interest in in Azora. The way he had a photo of her as well, yeah, um, which. Led to one of the, I th one of my favourite bits. I don't know if it's my favourite bit is the uh, the fight with Deckard and and, uh, and Leon <laughs> after he's killed uh, Zora because he just yeah. grabs him and like properly manhandles Deckard, pushes him, and he just goes, oh, "Leon," <laughs> like that, and he <laughs> yeah. whacks him again. And he's just it, it's typical Harrison Ford. Same with you know the, the reluctant hero almost taking a bit of a pace in. You know he's properly. Um, yeah. He's properly getting right punched really hard, whatever, which you see in the next scene with Rachel. Um, yeah. But it just it, there was an element of sort of um, not necessarily comedy, but but close to it for me, while still in in the in the feel of the movie, which I really liked. I, I really did like that fight. Leon, 
hold am I? I don't know. But then uh, obviously Rachel comes along and. Do you, do you know as well? There's um there's a, a false a falsely referenced goof in that fight. Um, when he when he's thrown onto the car, the windscreen's already slightly broken. Right. So yeah. people have people have called that as a goof. But apparently, the I think it was the screenwriter or the cinematographer, somebody, uh, I might be wrong, basically said, no, it, it was like a disused, broken vehicle anyway. And him landing on it, it, didn't, it wasn't to wreck a, you know, a perfect vehicle. It was already broken. Yeah. Um, but I, I love that line, um, you know, the wake up, time to die. I think that's such die. a brilliant line. Yeah, it is. And then it's obviously um, Roy in the final scene as well. Says the yeah. same thing. Time to die. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. it does. Yeah. Um, and then with the dove. But yeah, I do like that fight with um, with Harrison Ford and Leon. And then I love the attention to detail. Deckard's taking a pasting, which is another thing which says what the replicants, especially going to make a replicant that's a cop. Why hasn't he got this extra strength, yeah. superhuman strength and ability to withstand these these punches and things? It's getting thrown around like a ragdoll. But anyway, he goes back to his apartment, and he. He pours himself a, a vodka. Even though they seem to drink Johnny Walker black all the way through the movie, he pours himself like this vodka. And he takes a little bit of a quarter sip of it and then blood feeds back into it. I think that's brilliant. It's absolutely... Yeah. I just thought that's such a great um, yeah. attention to detail because then he really... Yeah. The subtlety goes in a few minutes when he's yeah. above the sink yeah. like that. <laughs> blood coming out of his mouth. Yeah. And, then fall, and then, yeah, and then falls asleep like Adam falls asleep when he's had a drink. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was wanting to just uh, touch briefly on uh, Philip K. Dick, who, as I mentioned in the introduction, wrote the original novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? The Blade Runner the, the title doesn't work, does it, for the book? Because so humans the dream of sheep. Humans count sheep to get to sleep. <laughs> yeah. Do humans dream of sheep? No, humans count sleep, sheep to get to sleep. So it would be, do androids count sheep? Electric sheep to get to sleep. <laughs> Wouldn't it? So it again, work for, three for, times. Such, for such an intellectual man, it, the title doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> well, but I, I mean, you mentioned the title of the novel. The actual title of the movie, Blade Runner, um, it's not actually in the original novel. There's no concept or name Blade Runner. Um, it was just something that Hampton Fancher wrote the screenplay. He 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 saw the title. It was a title. There was another novel, a completely different novel with that title, um, nineteen seventy four novel called The Blade Runner, and he just really liked the name. Uh, so he convinced Ridley Scott to go and buy the rights to it, so they could call their movie Blade Runner. But it's not mentioned in the original book or anything. It was somebody who who sold surgical instruments or something like that on the on the side. It's something like in the, yeah, in the future, basically, people are there's an underground network for people smuggling and selling medical stuff on the black market. Well, th th this speaks to my thought as well because th the term Blade Runner, not being one word, so it's not colloquialism for calling something. It's formed with a noun and a verb. So a Blade Runner. So it's as if have you got other runners? So is the Blade referring to replicants? And the runner is the fact you're chasing them down. So the fact it's two two words as opposed to one word, Blade Runner, it's Blade Runner. That yeah. sort of didn't make quite sense much sense to me, yeah. but it does in terms of that novel, doesn't it? Because he's the Blade Runner. He runs yeah. blades illegally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So maybe 
in my head, they made it, should have made it one word. And then you've got the colloquial phrase for someone who chases down the replicants and retires them. Yeah, so I think <laughs> it was you, it was you, Lloyd, that said you weren't really aware of, of anything else that Philip K. Dick had but written. I, I haven't um, seen anything else. So there's, yeah, I know there's a, no, I haven't, your, I haven't seen a scan of favorite films. <laughs> All right, I, haven't, I haven't seen a scanner darkly, and I haven't seen um, the man. In, two weeks, wanna, two weeks, two weeks. All right, did Total Recall, did he? Yeah. What Total was Recall? Recall was the, book the book. So, funnily enough, most of the famous adaptations, with the exception of these first two, Blade Runner and Total Recall, the other famous ones, to my mind, Minority Report, Paycheck, yeah. Scanner Darkly, and the Adjustment Bureau, they were all pretty much named after the original books. Okay. I mean, the, the Adjustment, Adjustment Bureau... The Adjustment Bureau was called the Adjustment Team, and Minority Report right. was called the Minority Report. Uh, Total Recall was called We Can Remember It For You Wholesale. Uh, oh, it was written okay. in 1966, actually, which is a very long time ago to be to be writing, you know, something mm -hmm. something that kind of that kind of I don't know what the word is. Just Philip K. Dick's vision of the future just seems to be like really prescient if that's the right word it's like how could you have yep. dreamed of these things back mm. then he's, almost he's like Arthur C. Clarke isn't he it's yeah. just on a different on a different I love I love all the movies that, that have got anything to do with Philip K. Dick and, and weirdly I've not even bothered my ass to go and read any of the books either have you seen um, The Adjustment Bureau yeah but I only I only vaguely remember it I actually googled I love, it the I love that movie. I did to like remind that. myself it's of the plot yeah, it's 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 a really good departure from some of his others because obviously you've got you know the sort of futuristic style of um, Total Recall with you know Mars interplanetary stuff. You've got um, Minority Report talking about you know precogs and you know predicting murders and things like that. But the Adjustment Bureau effectively is a love story. Um, yeah, yeah, and about, you know about it's, it's almost still predetermination, though, isn't it? Like Minority Report. So they're, yeah. they're and, and des but a little bit of destiny in there as well. Okay, yeah, but I think Emily Blunt and um, it's Matt Damon, I think, isn't it? Yeah, those it is, two yeah. together. It's, just, it's it's a really good film, you know, with simple premises within it as well. Yeah, I mean, that was written in 1954. So again, this is a long time ago for someone to be writing. Of, I think it's it's simple yet complex at the same time. And that's that's the beauty of it. It's it's. It's simple enough to understand, but it, it's still a fairly complex kind of uh, scenario that, that he's created, I think, yeah. given the time when he wrote it, or in the 50s. He's also um, got a lot of themes running through his head in terms of his himself and oneself, because Total yeah. Recall is just like, well, what makes you? Is it you or yeah. is it your memories? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a big theme. The, the, the replicants that are more human than human, which is the Tyrell tagline, but the one yeah. one that is more human than human is Rachel, who's got memories yeah. again. And then what does make it just because she's a robot or an android? Sorry, what does stop if she's got all the same emotions and functions and characteristics of a human? Well, what makes a human? Do you have to just have the biological workings? You know, the yeah. the organic parts to it, or can you recreate that? Yeah, um, I mean, if you've seen Blade Runner, um, twenty fifty four, twenty twenty forty seven, forty nine. I was looking at a day in the car, right? Have you seen Blade Runner 20, 2047? Um, there's a scene where the next... Have I done it again? <laughs> 2049. 
Yeah, so so I do think it's it's confusing as to whether they are meant to be to be half robot, half human, or whether they're meant to be just just yeah. their synthetic or, or lab grown humans. They bleed, they eat as well, don't they? Um, so there are there are some organic or biological functions going on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think withstood stuff. So there was no burning to Pris's hand when she put it in the boiling water. Yeah. Leon. When he puts in the cryogenic bit with the eyes, with the eye doc, uh, the eye guy, he brings yeah. it out, and there's nothing happened to the flesh; it hasn't frozen. So there's something, yeah. and obviously they've got super strength. So you know, they don't all have super strength, though. Do they not? Well, yeah. Well, you know even when, pleasure, when even the pleasure model Pris had super strength. Did she? Well, um, she. <laughs> <laughs> maybe not she's a bit of a gymnast and then she did um, when, you, when you see you see golden knight on the top move on him I did think that Famke Janssen yeah I did yeah. yeah you see each of the replicants kind of profiles and they've got yeah. their, their their statistics their incept date and their strength and their their mental abilities and I don't know if you noticed but their serial number is actually just a concatenation of all those numbers or an amalgamation yeah. Yeah. So um, I said in the introduction that Philip K. Dick died a few months before Blade Runner was actually released, so we never got to see the, the finished work. Uh, but he was fortunate enough to see some of the uh, footage, some of the special effects footage that they'd done, and it said that he was so blown away by what you saw, he actually turned to the special effects team and said, it's almost as if you you saw what was in my head when I wrote the novel. Wow. Yeah, they evidently showed him the scene in Jeff Sebastian's apartment. <laughs> The worst yeah. part of the whole movie is absolutely ridiculous, and it just lowered the whole tone. Do you they think that the Jim, Hen Jim Henson Muppet Show, puppet show, was a bit a bit weird, wasn't it? It was just ridiculous. It's evidently there's, it's obviously just like some little people in costumes, and it just doesn't work. The fellow with the stupid like the Pinocchio <laughs> pirate captain thing, it just it didn't work, yeah. and it just it burst the bubble for a little bit. For me, it brought me out of my immersion because it just looks so crap. And there's so many different things they could have done for that. Just thinking outside the box yeah. with the special effects they had at the time, there was no need for it. He's a toy maker, fine, but you just didn't need those two yeah. little bits of comic. You didn't need the Jar Jar Binks or the Ewoks in that scene. Yeah. You just didn't you need. What, what I thought was really good. I agree. What I thought one of the things that really resonates with me about the movie generally is you've got a movie made in what released in 1982 and we're watching it now and there isn't much from a technological point that you sit there and you go oh you know that's really dated badly um it's done in quite a special way you know that it's it's talking about sort of the darkness of society and you know there's there's spaceships flying overhead but really they're just the police cars or the advertising hoardings um with nice product placement um and there's not much, you know, the, the intercom and stuff is is the sort of thing you'd expect now. But there's nothing you're looking at and you're thinking, oh, that they thought that would be technologically advanced and now it looks really quite remedial. Everything mm -hmm. sort of feels quite fresh still, which is it, pretty the, impressive. The, there were some bit, like all computers, like an alien as well. So Alien's even more in the future than Blade or well, Blade Runner's two years ago, isn't it? But they're all like BBC micros with like green text on the yeah. screen. They're using all of those and then... In Leon's apartment, there's um, there's like a black and white TV. It's off, and like with a, a portable aerial on top to plug in the back. And you think, well, in the future, which it was then, the amazing far future of flying cars, your telly still wouldn't be 
that big cube with a, with an aerial. Yeah. That he's got to lean out the window and hold to get a, a reception on his telly. Um, Did you like um, the Easter egg, the aliens Easter egg? Um, I didn't notice one in there. I know, I've, I've sort of I've heard in the past that obviously there's Dallas who um, on his profile in Alien says something about Tyrell Corporation or he's worked for Tyrell Corporation. Oh, right, okay. I wasn't thinking that. I was thinking when um, Gaff's pl- flying the, um, the you know, the police vehicle. Oh, um, yeah. It comes up on the screen. It says Purge in red. I think it's in or red with a white reference. That's taken completely out of a scene in, is it Alien or Aliens, Dave? You'll probably know better than I am. I can't remember which. I think it's Aliens. Um, when I think Ripley's es- escaping on the ship. Um, but apparently that's the exact same copy of, of um, the screen on her on her computer. <laughs> so it was linking again for like, uh, almost linked to Ridley Scott. So Ridley Scott did Alien. James Cameron did Aliens. James Cameron also did The Terminator. And there's a bit where um, it just it popped in my head watching Final Cut and it didn't happen during the theatrical version where Decker's chasing Zora through the streets and she cowers down and is it the stairs going down to a subway or something she's carrying out the way yeah. and he's just coming through and he can kind of see her and he's getting closer and she's got no idea she's looking left and right and mm-hmm. when she finally sees him he, he draws his gun across to her she's got like a blue light on her face or something and for a second i flash back to like linda hamilton as uh, sarah connor in tech noir right yeah um yeah. and like when arnie actually trains the gun on her and the next thing you've got yeah. michael bean spinning up the sun off shotgun but for a second, I'll have to watch it again. You guys just watched that bit. And it was just it and for a second she even looked a bit like Linda uh, Linda Hamilton in it. It was just it was almost like Deckard was was like terminating her and she's the more human character because she's just trying to escape now. What's your what was your thoughts on Sean Young's performance and the kind of connection between the two actors in terms of the performance? Did you think it was convincing as a love sto- story between the two of them? Uh, I, I th- th- when they've actually connected, um, so the first physical romantic connection, I it just I was floored with how awkward and out of the feeling of the rest of their relationship in the movie and, and the, the feeling of the movie. It felt like eighties Bond when it was when it was okay because you, it was it was a baddie it was a baddie woman. And I'm going to throw the moves on her as James Bond. And if it takes a little bit of force, but she comes around in the end, then it's okay. It was absolutely just inappropriate. And I didn't see that. Yeah. I, I didn't place it. However, it does seem to tie into later on. And it throws a few questions up there because when he's telling, he's telling her to say things, isn't he? He's saying, tell me, to, tell me to kiss me. Tell me, uh, tell me you want me or something. Tell me you want me. And so it's like he's programming a type of behavior, which is it's almost like mental abuse, isn't it? But he's programming a type of behavior. Then at the end, when he goes back to the apartment after Gaff's been there and he thinks she's dead in bed and pulls back the quilt and he's yeah. so happy that she's alive, he says to her, do you love me? And she says, I love you. Not yes, I love you. Almost yeah. like the, the program he'd done previously. And then, yeah. do yeah. you trust me? Not yes, I trust you. So it's it's yeah. a repeat of when he put words in her mouth in a previous scene, which set, almost says to me, she's just looking for a way out, and it kind of unravelled the you, whole connection between them to me a little bit. In that in that awkward scene where he's sort of saying like you know forcing his ideas on her, um, he says I think three different things to her, which she repeats back. But I don't think he says, um, "Put your hands on me." 
I, which is know, what I, she then I, says. Yeah, I picked that up in the final cut. I need to watch yeah. the original again because I didn't. I was very aware when I was when I heard that bit that he didn't tell her to say that, but I didn't yeah. pick up on anything of that in the original theatrical version. So I'm going to have to watch the theatrical again. Yeah, I think I think it's the same in that I think that the I I I assumed or took from it that yes, he was being quite forceful. Yes, she was repeating things back, but this was something she actually then volunteered. So, but I mean, I I don't like that kind of idea anyway of sort of you know winning somebody round in that kind of really kind of forceful way. He, he it, makes it, a fist, it's not a comfortable slams the door scene. like that, and he pushes her against the block, like forces yeah. her. Where, yeah. When it first was happening, the first millisecond, I thought it was it's playfulness, and she's going to get like a wry smile from her. Yeah. And it was, it's just straight on her, and it's just, it didn't fit. It didn't fit it's with shocking. him. It's quite it's shocking, isn't it? It doesn't, it doesn't yeah, really fit in the play of the movie. Now, it is it him just thinking it's, well, it's, it's a replicant? Is it him trying to say to himself, it's just a robot? There's uh, there's a document in the documentary, I think it was Dangerous Days, they show some some outtakes of other things that they tried in that romantic scene and it didn't work for whatever reason or another. There was like, <laughs> you'll laugh, there was one version where they basically oiled her up and he kind of had her up against the wall and he kind of got her legs and wrapped them around him and the legs were all slippy and oily and, and it just Whilst they play un- Unchained Melody in the background. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't think the connection between Rachel and Deckard works particularly well. And that could be intentional because she is a replicant and he may be a replicant. And that might, might be an intentional thing where they may not, they may not either be particularly great at, at expressing emotions or even necessarily feel emotions. But when you understand that um, Harrison Ford really didn't like Sean Young and didn't get on with her particularly right. well, it may have just been a kind of directorial trick to kind of get away with the actual lack of spark that they had on screen. Right. That makes sense. In the end scene with Roy Batty, he does a funny change in look at Deckard. There's a moment where he sort of looks at him and then he goes, and then he decides he's going to die rather than kill Deckard, if you see what I mean. And it's almost as if he's he's looked in his eyes and he's seen, oh my God, you're one of us. But I don't, I don't know if that's true. But there's so many different nuances to that whole exchange, really. I, I mean, I, I, felt, I find, I felt, go on, sorry. I felt like Roy had made the decision not to kill him earlier than that final uh, interject between them, where he saves him from falling off, because he could have done. And it's almost like Roy's teaching him a lesson. Uh, Roy's writing his final. You know, it's, it's, his, it's his final scene, isn't it? And he's just trying to impart various things. And Deckard, you know, there's a bit where Deckard hits him. And he's like, that's the spirit when he hits him with yeah. his metal pole. And he kind of, yeah. he, he wants to kill him at first for vengeance. And he's got, and Pris is there and he's very upset. And then he just, I don't feel the decision was made in that last, very last few seconds on that rooftop where he pulls him up yeah. and decides, well, it's me, not you. I think he made that decision, you know, good few minutes earlier in this sort of chase scene. Well, it was like he he made – I think he explicitly stated it at one point, didn't he, that he was talking about fear, you know, what it's like to live in fear. And it was almost as if he was toying with him and getting him to the point of, you know, I'm going to die. There's no, there's no hope here, I'm going to die. And then he saves him. And he says, you know, you've now experienced the sort of fear that we we as replicants experience. Go and live your life. You know, as a human, you can now live your life better, having appreciated what us as replicants have gone through or go yeah. through. 
and it's his, it's his last even, testament, isn't he? He's kind of writing by his actions in those last few minutes. Yeah, and it's something they, very they, um, Shakespearean about about Roy Batty, I think. Yeah, and I think he played that part. You know, you, you know, he made up that that last. I don't know where he got it from. You know, I'm sure you'll have some more information, Dave. But he made up that last monologue, um, and you know, they film Harrison Ford's reaction to what the heck is this guy saying? Anyway, you know, the real life reaction, um, and that fit perfectly as well with this character. What I didn't quite understand is the whole four year lifespan thing. You know, I was. I was doing what I might normally do, do, doing the maths. It's set in November. He's got until the 6th of January 2020, technically, to live, hasn't he? Or whatever. Um, so he still had a month and a half, two months to live. So I'm not sure quite why it accelerated it for him. Well, if it's if it's like you're saying, Adam, where it's more sort of they're more human than you think than an android, then it's less programming. It's more like a genetic thing. So I imagine it's quite hard to get it pinpointed on that four-year mark for if it's if you know if it's genetics, whereas if, if it was actual computers and circuit boards and wires, and yeah. transistors and stuff, you just basically it could just be pop on that date. Yeah. It just rolls onto that num that time sequence and it's it's over. But it was more of an organic shutdown, wasn't it? Which is more, you know, yeah. it's more the genetics kicking in. That's why I thought anyway, because I never understood why it's the beginning. It says November 2019, Los Angeles, November 2019. Yeah. It's only like recently I've been like ah. Because it's giving you the, you can work out the inset dates and when they're due to uh, expire. Yeah. There's a lovely bit um, with Rutger Hauer as well. So he's chasing Harrison Ford through, and he puts his head through the window. Yeah, and I forget what line he says to Harrison Ford, but then he just feels the rain on the side of his face, and he kind of like smiles, and then takes his head back inside again. And it's yeah. it's almost him realizing like this is it, because there's no way to save me now. But he's just he just appreciates feeling that rain on it. It's just it's a lovely like three seconds. And it, mm. I don't know if it was it was improvised or if it was directed that way, but he just fit. He, he says something to Deckard, feels a rain in his face, a little smile, and just he just lingers there for a second and takes his head in. And I, I thought that was great. Little bits like that yeah. make the movies. I, I saw an interview with Rutger Hauer where he said he very intentionally threw in lots of little flourishes like that to demonstrate that he, Roy Batty, as a replicant coming towards the end of his lifespan. But becoming effectively emotionally mature in that respect was kind of try throwing in all these little bits and pieces that were showing he was fully, he was finally appreciating what it really was to be alive, to be human, so to speak, to have yeah. a soul, to have fully formed emotions. So yeah, they were all they were all ad libbed. I think he did talk to Ridley Scott about what he planned to do when he and he agreed with it. But it was it was all little touches like that which which made him feel more human and more rounded as a character but just genius to watch yeah and um, i just wanted to talk about the um the, the the death scene on the on the rooftop the tears in the rain not necessarily the speech i mean as adam said look how it did ad lib large sections of that um and it's amazing but there's um there's a fairly significant um right at the end of that shot um when he Famously, the, he releases a dove when he dies, and the dove flies up. Did you notice the difference between the theatrical release and the and the final cut in that in that sequence? No. Yeah, I didn't. No, the uh, the theatrical release the, is just almost like a corrugated building, isn't it? It just and looks then, like a, a, but, an old like a warehouse or something, doesn't it? Just like yeah. something in an, an industrial building. They, they cut it from um, the end of a Bon Jovi video, and it's and it's daylight. <laughs> it's it's in stark contrast to the rest of the movie, yeah. whereas. 
in the fi- in the final cut, they actually like redid it properly CGI. So it's a it's a rainy, gloomy nighttime that the, that the doves and and the same kind of architecture that the doves flying up into. There's also a funny story about the dove scene itself. Um, David's funny stories. <laughs> it's not on a par with, with with last week's funny stories about sticker books and stuff. But um, so he, he'd held that. It was his idea to hold the dove actually. Uh, but he'd had that dove and he'd, they'd been on that rooftop in the rain for so long sh- uh, shooting that dialogue. And by the time it got to the end of it, when he wanted to release the dove, the dove just dropped onto the rooftop and toppled off. It was so sodden, wet with water, it, co- it was incapable of flying. So they actually, that was towards the end of the schedule. They were running out of time and money. So they ended up having to go and replicate that set inside in, in, in a sound stage or something and redo some of those shots. And it was only then... When the dove was inside, it wasn't soaking wet. That it actually took off at the end of at the end of the speech. I like it. That's good. David's funny stories. So, what themes or symbolism did you pick up on during the movie? And there's one really major one, and you've basically already alluded to it. Identity. Mortality. What is what is human? What makes you? What make, yeah. So I've 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 made a few points. I've made a few notes. What makes a human? I would say, you know, you know what is it? It's a soul, essential, isn't it? It's the difference between an organic life and an actual human. It's having a soul, having real emotions, real memories, as opposed to implanted. Actually, having lived that experience. So that's certainly a theme. But but there's there's one theme that is so so um heavily present throughout the movie over and over again in terms of imagery and that's eyes eyes are in this movie constantly it opens with an eye the owl's eye it opens with the with the shot flying over the city doesn't it reflected in an eye with all those flames Um, coming out of the the columns when 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 roy kills terrell he gouges his eyes out terrell wears really thick glasses which suggests that You know, he's almost short-sighted. He hasn't thought through what what he's actually created. Um, Chu, the guy, he makes he makes yeah. eyes. That's his job. Yeah. And that's all he makes. Yeah, yeah. And Leon eyes represent his shoulder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> eyes, eyes, eyes represent the, the you know window into the soul, don't they? Yeah, so, so there's that kind of connection as well. Uh, the line, if you could only see what I'd seen with your eyes. Mm-hmm. Chris has got spray painted eyes. So all these things. Constantly, and even in Blade Runner twenty forty nine as well. And I was going to say it lots... resonates in that. Yeah, yeah. The, so it's about eyes just constantly. Is um, had they had enough time and, and and funding to to complete Ridley Scott's actual original vision of the movie, it turns out that Tyrell himself was a replicant. Right. Okay. So the real original Tyrell is in the next floor up in the pyramid, dead in this futuristic sarcophagus. And what oh, happens okay. is Roy would have murdered Tyrell, gouged his eyes out, then gone up to the next level only to see the real Tyrell dead in this sarcophagus, knowing therefore that effectively what he's just done is irrelevant anyway because the real guy's dead and no one can help him. Okay, so I just wanted to move on to talk about uh, the effect that Blade Runner's had on culture since it was released. And I guess also wrap into that same question, you know, what did Blade Runner get right about the, its vision of the future and what did it get wrong? Uh, everyone would be using BBC Micros in all parts <laughs> of their life. 
Yeah. And the only, it would just be green, yeah, green <laughs> characters on the screen forever. Yeah. Yeah, so video, video calls, although, although obviously you're restricted to actually standing in, in a booth or, you know, where it was fixed to a wall. So you're not like we've got now we can walk around using our – there was no mobile devices, that I recall, that they had, like communicators or whatever, no. which Star Trek predicted in the 60s, I think it was. There's that line that Gaff says, somebody mentioned it earlier, um, which is, again, is is a hint that Deckard's a replicant, which is you've done a man's job, sir. Yeah. Suggesting yeah. he's not a man, mm. a, a, an organic, a, a, synth, a, a real man. Um, now, in earlier versions of the script, and there's a soundbite of it somewhere in a documentary that I watched, in earlier versions of the script, the actual full line, which you would have said, was you've done a man's job, sir, but are you sure you are a man? Which is right. kind of like, it's going beyond hinting, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's still a hint, but it's a much, it's a much bigger kind of, finger pointing than, than the actual line right. that ended up in it well it's one of the biggest the biggest sort of direction towards it by someone who doesn't know if he's a replicant or not is that rachel line isn't it have you ever taken the test yourself then it lingers in yeah. silence and everyone's going yeah. and thinking why is he quiet and then but as soon as you see him asleep yeah. with like the vodka balanced on his chest you forget kind of about the way your mind was taking that question and then you just move yeah. on don't you is that, I was imagining it's Sambuca. That's, that must just be me. Because I'm quite barges. Yeah, another thing, attention to detail as well, when he's having the drink in that in the bar just before the snake stripper comes on. And he takes a sip and he gets the uh, the maggot. Uh, the, yeah. Sorry, the worm, isn't it? It's like a tequila worm out of yeah. his mouth. Puts it down. Yeah. And you've got all the little tequila, uh, the worms in the bottom of the, uh, the tequila glass. In terms of uh, <laughs> the, the influence that the Blade Runner's had, as I said in, in the introduction... Well, look, I, like I wanted to talk about Back to the Future too. Actually, it was on my list of things. I mean, because it's it's basically Blade Runner Light, isn't it? Uh, Back to the Future. Yeah, well, like, that's, yeah, like as I said before, Fifth Elements like Blade Runner Light as well. Yeah. And did you think uh, I, I got? I remember making a note when I watched it last week um, that the cars in Blade Runner they really reminded me of Johnny Cabs in Total Recall. The one car that reminded me of the Johnny Cab was J.F. Sebastian's car. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I remember writing yeah. Johnny Cab as a note when I, when I yeah. was watching it. Okay, so um, as you mentioned earlier on, um, you mentioned Sing Tao Beer, which which he orders, I think, when he's at the noodle bar, is it, in the start? Yeah, that's right, yeah. So, I mean, I wanted to just talk about, what again, another note that I made when I was watching the movie was, you know, the use of the billboards, you know, it's it's yeah. necessary in building a, a kind of believable world, but it is quite clearly also product placement, um, both in the original movie and also in uh, in the sequel as well. Yeah. Um. So I did a little. I, I did a little bit of research into this, and I found out that there's an actual thing now that they call the Curse of Blade Runner, yeah. which is that most of those brands that appeared on those billboards in the original movie subsequently went bust. <laughs> so Pan Am, yeah. Do you want some of them? Right, you tell me. These are the ones I noticed, Dave. <laughs> okay, Pan Am, obviously, you said about there. Yeah. Coca Cola yeah. didn't. Yeah. Cuisinart, Cuisinart, Cuisinart. Yeah, they make food pro processors. They're still around. I recognise the name. Yeah, they're still around. Atari. Yeah. Atari. Yeah. Atari is a kind of mid. Atari technically went bust, but it's like. Um, mm. It's like BlackBerry, they're about to release a new phone. They don't really exist anymore, but somebody bought the name. So Atari, right. as a brand, still exists, but the, the, the real Atari company did go bust, yeah. 
Denny's. I remember that they were around in the nineties still. Denny's. I didn't see Denny's. Yeah, I don't Denny's. That. Yeah, watch your back. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> Not me. Bull- is it Bull Over? The watches. Um, they're still they around. They, they, are they like luxury watches? Yeah. Not Bulova. What's the, what's the brand? I'm trying to think. You're thinking of Bulgari, aren't you? Bulgari, yeah. I don't, was that in there? Bulova was in there. Oh, right. Um, Budweiser. Yeah. Um, RCA. So RCA, Curse of Blade Runner. Yeah. They, 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 about, they... Um, TWA. Western that... Airlines. Yeah, that's mentioned as one of the hover ports, isn't it? Is it? Okay. Right. So, yeah, RCA, about... you mentioned... RCA no longer existed by 1986. They were bought by General Electric, ceased to exist. Uh, and there was another one in their Bell phones. I assume that's when he was making his video call. They uh, they became AT&T not long after the movie was released. Um, so that's it. That's brands in Blade Runner. We haven't really touched on... It's a big subject, but just the, the score, Vangelis, it was... Um, that's another aspect that just makes the movie the, the great thing it is. It just, I think it frames it really well. It, it bringing, you know, the, kicking in in the beginning and you've got these sort of, I don't know if they're minors or minor sevenths used in it just to create a little bit of feeling of uneasiness. And then the, the notes are resolved. And then you've got like what the police use, like the suspense, suspense chords where it needs, they need to be resolved as well in it. It's lovely and melodic, but there's these bits of uneasiness that need to be resolved, and then it goes somewhere else as well. I just and using that electro um, style to it as well, the, like the electro synth. It just, yeah. um, I think it's it's sort of it's transcending. It takes you somewhere. It takes you somewhere else, and that's another engaging part of the movie. As soon as I start watching it, and I hear that, I yeah. feel taken into it, which I really really liked about it. Um, the worst thing about the score. Was probably you know the the, the, uh, the lethal weapon saxophone bit which we talked about before, which sounds a bit like yeah. too good to be true. Didn't fit in yeah. with yeah. the style, yeah. um, and then the outro as well. So the credits roll, and you've I got like a slow, I love that that tune that like proper it's ace, electric, isn't it? It's just at the end, yeah. It's just it fits really yeah. well. So you know it, it fits with with end credits. It's just it, it's it's just a sublime job. Tell you a funny story about when I went, when I went to see Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Funny stories. Do, 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 do. So I was working in London um, as I was week in week out uh, at that time, and it was towards the end of Blade Runner's theatrical run, and I knew if I didn't get to see it, I was going to miss it in the cinema. So uh, I was in. I would, can't remember the part of London I was in. Um, the, I can't remember the exact name of the cinema I went to. But it was uh, it was close to, to the Emirates Stadium, Arsenal. Um, so I walked to the cinema that night from the hotel. Uh, it was an Odeon, I think. Stories. <laughs> it was an Odeon. Other cinemas are available. Uh, went to the desk, bought my ticket, looked around, noticed there was fellas standing around in tuxedos and earpieces and stuff, and thought, going on here? Because it, was, it wasn't a, you know, there was no red card. Were you at the premiere, Dave? 
Well, let's find out when I tell you the rest of the story. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah, so there, was, there was, like I said, there was guys in tuxedos and in earpieces, burly fellas standing around looking like they were, you know, monitoring something. Um, so I went up to the screen, sat down. And I thought, this is weird. What's going on? So I was kind of, you know, when you start trying to Google something, you're trying to think out what what search term I'm gonna I'm gonna use to try and work out what's going on. So I googled basically the name of the cinema that I was at and premiere because I got the idea that something was happening uh, and it turned out that there was some movie that had been made about Arsenal the, the year when they basically won the title on the last day they took by beating us and it turns out that the premiere of that movie was happening at exactly the same time in that cinema right. when I was there watching Blade Runner 2049 Dave's funny nice. stories do 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 yeah. do Next week, Dave buys cheese. <laughs> Joe, it's, it's funny. You, it's funny you should say that. They did um, London Film Festival on the move years and years ago. I think when we were all about maybe about twenty years twenty years old, nineteen twenty, um, not nineteen twenty, <laughs> nineteen or twenty years old, uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we. Um, it, they they decided one of the I think two of the films or three of the films were going to be at. Um, the showcase cinema in Liverpool. And um, I remember somebody getting me and somebody else some tickets. And um, we went to see, um, I think it was Out of Sight with um, George Clooney. And I want to say, is J-Lo. it Kate Winslet? J-Lo. J-Lo. J-Lo, yeah. yeah. And it was directed by Steven Soderbergh. And um, I had somewhere else I needed to be straight after the movie. And I didn't realize that it was this kind of, quite important thing um so i was sat at, sat at the back with someone and um we watched the movie and it was a brilliant movie and everyone clapped at the end and i thought that's a bit strange to clap at the end of the movie <laughs> um and um so as they announced steven soderbergh to come out to talk about his movie <laughs> me and this person just walked down and see her we've got somewhere else to be and we left and i was only about two days later i was like Steven Soderbergh was talking about his movie i just saw it i'm, I'm going to the pub <laughs> True story. <laughs> okay. So we're going to wrap up the discussion on Blade Runner now by giving our individual ratings for the movie. And we're going to be giving our ratings against the final cut version of the movie. We've got two types of ratings on The Great Movie Show. We've got the popcorn rating and we've got the critics rating. Popcorn rating is essentially how much you enjoy the movie. Is it a bit of a guilty pleasure? Something you put on at the end of a hard day? Throw in some Kenny G, have a bath. (laughs) (laughs) So the popcorn rating is how much you personally enjoy the movie, whereas the critic rating is your understanding of exactly how much of a great movie it is from a technical perspective. So starting off with you, Lloyd, what would your popcorn rating be for Blade Runner Final Cut? Um, It's a very good film. So popcorn rating is is like my personal enjoyment, isn't it? Regardless of whether it was a classic or just you know, like your run of the mill Dumb and Dumber or something about Mary. Um, so my popcorn rating would be still pretty high. Say, hmm, it's a little bit heavy. Go, it's either an eight or an eight and a half. Eight and a half because I do. I could watch it. Again, when I get the opportunity, again, without being interrupted, I can watch it again and again. I like Harrison Ford's performance, Harrison Ford's performance in it. Um, 
Yeah, eight and a half. I'm going to go for. Okay. Adam? Um, slightly controversial. Mine's going to be a seven for a popcorn rating. Um, yeah. It doesn't interfere with my critics rating, which will come up in a moment, but um, it's not a film that I'd put on too many times. Um, I, I appreciate the spectacle that it is, but um, from a popcorn personal perspective, seven for me. Okay. Um, I'm giving it a nine out of 10 from a popcorn rating. Um, I know it's not the easiest movie to watch, but for me, it's a movie, if I give it the, the, the chance, the time of day to actually sit and focus on it, then I find it an, an extremely enjoyable experience. So that's why I'm giving it a nine out of 10. So better than Die Hard. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's probably why I took so long to watch Die Hard and why I've seen Blade Runner. 10, 15 times. Cool. Um, you know, slightly more kind of a uh, thinking man's movie, I suppose. I mean, thinking man's compare. <laughs> okay, so moving on to the critics rating, Lloyd, how would you rate it? Oh, um, it's not going to get a full boat because I don't like a few little bits. I don't like I don't like the unicorn memory. I think it just muddies the waters too much. You know, if, if their intention is for him to be a replicant, then the unicorn memory is saying he definitely is. I don't like that. I like it's make up your own mind about about what's going on. Um but it's it, it's a great movie, it's a classic movie, it's it's almost what Ridley Scott wanted it to be. Um when we're talking about the final cut without the voiceover and everything. But it's still it's still not quite there. But I'm going to say, for its time, for the special effects, the soundtrack, the story, the acting, um, four and a half. Okay, is my critics rating. Adam, um, I'm exactly the same. My critics rating is four and a half stars. Um, it's pretty close to being a cinematic masterpiece for what it is trying to achieve. If you said how can you make the best sci-fi movie you can make? I don't think you'd be far off with Blade Runner. Um, I don't think it's quite a a film masterpiece of itself against all the genres. Mm. This is the only reason why I'll drop down half a star. I'm sure as the weeks go on, you'll uh, wonder how I put it as four and a half when I might give another film five stars. Um, yeah. But for me, yeah. I think America it's almost there. <laughs> it's almost there. So I'd give it four and a half stars. Okay. Um, I just wanted to mention before I give my rating that the popcorn ratings were out of 10, whereas the critic ratings are out of five. Basically, it sounds like we're giving, we're giving Blade Runner four and a half out of 10 for a critic's rating. So the critic's ratings are out of five. Um, I'm going to keep mine short and sweet, um, similar to what both of you have already said. I'm going to give it four and a half out of five. I think it's an amazing movie. I love it. I think it's really well made. Um, I can't think of any movies that I would give a five, five out of five to. That's just the way I am. So 4.97 if needs be, but I'm giving it four and a half. It's it's as close to a perfect movie as you can get, in, in my opinion. Yep. Roll titles. <laughs> <laughs> now it's... Pop quiz, hot shot.
Okay, this is the part of the show when we get to know a little bit more about one of our hosts. This week, it's Adam that I'm going to be asking the questions to. So, you ready, Adam? Yeah. I am indeed. Okay. So, these uh, questions might be familiar from anyone that saw last week's episode. So, first question is, what was the first film you saw in the cinema? Um, the first film that I saw, but I don't remember seeing at the cinema, was E.T., um, being a similar age to Lloyd, uh, perhaps unsurprising, that was the first movie. The first movie I remember seeing at the cinema was Return of the Jedi. Um, I'd seen the, the the first two films on VHS or, or even possibly terrestrial telly. Um, and they they were so important to me. I thought they were such brilliant films um, mm. that when I actually got to see Return of the Jedi on, on the cinema... I actually thought for a while that that was my favourite. I think maybe for six, seven, eight, nine years, I thought that Return of the Jedi was the best of the three. Um, I'm sure that many people have different debates. I'm quite happy now that Empire Strikes Back is the best movie out of those three, um, probably followed by Star Wars and then Return of the Jedi. Um, yeah. But being you know like a four or five-year-old kid, um, possibly even younger, um, going to see Return of the Jedi, having understood, I think, at the time, some of the main issues in the, the film, um, maybe not the, the, you know, the, the big sort of familial issues, um, and then just the fact that there were Ewoks and, you know, what was happening with them was something that kids really liked. Um, yeah. And so all, all of the things now that we hate about the, the remakes with, like, Jar Jar Binks and, and things like that... Um, Actually, they're in it for a reason, and the Ewoks were a reason why I really liked it as a kid. So uh, I think Lloyd jokes last week even about Caravan of Courage or Battle yeah. of Ferendor. I watched those movies. I rent. I re I rented those VHS movies. Yeah. Exactly. I'm re really, really enjoyed it. Prob probably yeah. in the scheme of things, they were not very good movies, but yeah, I remember that definitely being a movie that I came out of really having enjoyed. There was just something about Star Wars, and I'll I'll come to it later when you ask me the obvious question. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, um, that's what I remember as my as the first movie I went to. I've been told many a time that uh, I came out of ET crying my eyes out on my dad's shoulder, um, but mm. I don't have any recollection. I love ET. I've seen it many, many, many times at home, but I don't remember being in the cinema watching it once. Give us a movie fact or Easter egg. Um, I'll give you both. Um, I'll give you a movie fact only because I read this yesterday, I think. Um, Sharon Stone's got a new book out, um, and she's referenced the fact that when she was producer on The Quick and the Dead, do you remember the sort of Western that she was the star in? TriStar Pictures DiCaprio. were impressed with Leonardo Di DiCaprio, and I think he just got a nomination for an Oscar for What's Eating Gilbert Grape. And um, she was really impressed with him. And they said, well, if you want him, you can pay his wages. So she did. So the reason he's in that movie is because Sharon Stone paid his wages. Um, in terms of an Easter egg, um, one that I really like is um, in Trading Places, um, Dan Aykroyd's character, uh, Lewis Winthorpe, um, the second, third, um, he's arrested uh, towards the start of the movie and he has, you know, like the plate, the prison number or whatever, the arrest number. And that yeah. arrest number is the same number as Juliet Jake Blues had from the Blues Brothers, which was played by John Belushi. Um, yeah. Both both films were directed by Ivan Reitman. Dan Aykroyd was in both. And in fact, um, there's a couple of 
other layers in relation to that, but basically the number, it's something like 74-74505B on the Joliet Jake Blues one. But actually, it looks like they got it wrong for Dan Aykroyd's character on Trading Places, and actually it's an 8 rather than a B. Um, there's another there's another movie as well that Dan Aykroyd's in. I can't remember what it is. I think um, Crazy Like Us or something like that with Walter Matthau, um, where he's also um, got a prison number, and it's the same one as um, the original, but actually has the B rather than the A. Um, the reason I like that whole Easter egg is that um, Dan Aykroyd was in Trading Places with Eddie Murphy. And when he wrote Ghostbusters, um, he wrote it with um, Peter Venkman effectively being Eddie Murphy. He wrote it for Eddie Murphy. And also he he expected John Belushi um, to be in that movie as well. Um, so I like the sort of link between Eddie Murphy and John Belushi and Ghostbusters and Dan Aykroyd. Um, and um, another fact associated with that as well, apparently, is that... Um, they wanted Slimer to look like John Belushi. I was, I was, was going to wait for you to finish. I was going to say the same thing. Yeah, and and apparently the guy who designed it said, "Yeah, yeah, 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 I'll make it exactly like him." Didn't do anything different. Didn't redesign <laughs> it at all. And they were like, "It's yeah. amazing. He looks just like John Belushi." And he was like, "My work here is done." He's an yeah, ugly so, little um, And and apparently, obviously, the 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 reason why he wasn't in um, Ghostbusters was because. Uh, um, John Belushi passed away from a yes, um, from a, a drug overdose, I think. But um, Eddie Murphy wasn't in it because he thought it sounded like a croc. Next question, Adam. First movie soundtrack you bought? Um, this is a, a little embarrassing. Um, Armageddon. <laughs> For the um, Aerosmith classic. I I don't even know really why I bought it. I mean, I like the film. Um, Michael Bay. I, I know why you bought it. Um, I think Chips, it was. Um, so you can just go. Oh, there's a really emotional bit in this movie. Let me just put the CD on. I, I think I quite liked. Um, just. <laughs> I I always remember oh, on the, the film. I always remember on the film there was uh, that terrible bit with you know Ben Affleck when he was <laughs> he's going the Animal Channel and he tried to be Australian on oh, on yeah. Liv Tyler's like tummy. And she, oh yeah, here in the undergrowth, <laughs> the That's giraffe cringe. attacks, yeah. and it's terrible. But it's like some sort of like acoustic version of "Don't Want to Miss a Thing" in the background, which was mm. doubly weird because it was Liv Tyler's dad singing yeah. as she was just about to embark on something. No, 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 um, no. Bruce Willis is a dad, not Stephen Tyler. Yeah. Do you know what? Um, In real uh, life. <laughs> Stephen Tyler wasn't sold at, at first. So is, this might may or may not be true again. It's one of my facts that are always dubious. Um, Lloyd's facts. They showed the scene to Stephen Tyler where it's basically from the, the real scene from the movie where Bruce Willis's feet's about to cut out and she, and she goes, Dad, and puts her hand on the... On the on the TV screen, wherever she's watching, like in NASA, mm. because obviously Steam Tyler's a dad, and watch, and he just got that emotional link with it. And goes, "Yeah, I'll do it." And the that's why they put the, uh, the the song for the movie. True story. Oh, I always like um, Chantel Krasovic's, um "Leaving on a Jet Plane" rather than the original by John Denver. I think that's probably yeah. why I bought the album, but I have no idea why. But probably for the reason Lloyd gave earlier. Right, Adam. Next question is: first eighteen film you watched. Enter the Dragon. Is that an 18? 
yeah, at the time it was um, yeah, ultra considered to be ultra violent. Um, I'm not sure whether that was slightly superseded by an older VHS of the Octagon, um, starring mm. Chuck Norris. Um, but yeah, I remember very very young. I used to um, sneak to watching um, any martial arts film I could possibly find on terrestrial telly and the bbc used to play things like enter the dragon at like 11 o'clock at night um mm. yeah. and um i i remember i don't know what it was but something about john saxon's character in that that i thought was quite cool um yeah. not just bruce lee's character um yeah and i've i've watched that film probably 50 times since um i probably saw that when i was about nine or ten so yeah, that's the first eighteen certificate film I watched. So Adam, what's the first film or TV show that made you cry? Okay, I'll um, I'll stay with film. Um, first one that I'm told made me cry, as I said earlier, was uh, ET. Um, mm-hmm. The first film that I remember crying in was um, the Neverending Story when Artax the horse died yeah. in the swamp of sadness. Oh, I think. That is sad. That yeah. is really sad. Um, and I, I remember being quite—I was—I remember being disturbed by that. And th- you know, mm-hmm. it wasn't until obviously the end of the movie where it's like everything's resurrected because you know it it, it moves on and Atreus off riding Atreyu! Artax again. Falcor, Atreus, <laughs> Falcor. It was it was the first movie that, and weirdly, because I think I was very very young, that and Gremlins were the first two films. Um, that I had on VHS. I think those two, and possibly Santa Claus the movie with uh, John Lithgow and um, Dudley Moore. Who else? Dudley Moore, yeah. Um, were the first three films on VHS that I had. Um, so I watched um, Never Ending Story quite a lot. Um, first film that I remember really sort of deeply being upset about, though, was um, Boys in the Hood. Um, and, you know, Ricky the. Obviously, a linebacker or something like that. It's, yeah, Trey's well, mate. Dreams. He's going to go to college and get a spot. Uh, yeah, but the weird thing was, yeah, and but the thing was, I and this is the thing that made me feel that maybe you know, like a bit older when I was watching it. I don't think I cried necessarily when he was killed in the movie. I think I cried, you know, when they brought the um him back, his body back to his mum. And it was the same time she had the delivery of the test results and he needed some like 700 on his SATs to get his football scholarship. And basically she opens it and he's got like 710. So he would have got his basketball, uh, his um, American football scholarship, but he was, he was shot dead. I remember that just absolutely flooring me as a movie. Um, so that's the thing I sort of remember most being emotionally affected by, um, despite the earlier incidents of uh, Never End of Story and E.T. Okay. Um, who do you think is the best Bond? Sean Connery. Um, I think I think Sean's iconic. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think Sean. Con- as far as I'm concerned, Sean Connery is James Bond. I think everyone mm. else has has been a different version of him. Um, mm. I still think that Goldfinger is probably the the ultimate Bond film from what was written by Fleming. You know, you've got. Auric Goldfinger, you've got, you know, a proper heist, you've got, you know, the henchman that is odd job. I mean, it's 
the it's there's so many classic details that that's the main one that's been copied by you know austin powers with um random task <laughs> uh, and things like that you know and uh, um do you expect me to talk no mr bond i expect you to die things like that um you know that that was going to be a um like a, a circular saw yeah was that laser beam um, it's People a laser changed beam. it for a laser beam, didn't they? It was originally going to be yeah. a circular saw. Yeah. I think one of you two told yeah. me that. But do you know yeah. the interesting thing about James Bond is that I remember my my mum hating it because it was so loud whenever they did the the action moments. The music mm. seems to be cranked up three times louder than anything else. Oh, and I kept having to be, so I had to be told to turn the volume down. Yeah, I had to turn the volume down every single time. But, okay, so the next question, Adam, is who do you consider to be the most underrated actor? Actually, a female actor um, who is really, really good is Michelle Rodriguez. I think that she doesn't necessarily get the roles that she should have, um, perhaps slightly pigeonholed by being in all the Fast and Furious movies. But if you watch like Girl Fight or more recently Widows, I don't know if you've both seen that. Um, she's mm-hmm. absolutely brilliant, brilliant actress. Um, but I suppose one that I think that doesn't get the plaudits that he should get perhaps is Sam Rockwell. I think he's Sam Rockwell for me is an actor, you know, Al Pacino or Robert De Niro. I think he's absolutely fantastic. Um, yeah. I, I'd like to say Lloyd, but no. Um, That's, isn't that who you said, Lloyd? Yeah, I, I said it. And then I think Adam went, no, no, just, cut, just, just have one. Just have one. I suppose if it wasn't for the series Billions, Paul Giamatti would be up there for me as being an actor that I think is yeah. quite underrated. Sideways, um, very good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You tried to get me to watch that many, many a time. Have you not um, seen it yet? Still not seen it. Oh, wow. Um, so we Adam hasn't seen something. Um, I've seen it. But, um, I've seen it. Can you believe that? I've seen it. Oh, high five. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I'd say uh, Paul Giamatti. Hey, Adam, the next question is, name a featured song or soundtrack that resonates with you. And you can't say Armageddon. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so I would be a liar if I didn't say that the soundtrack that um, I've listened to most over the years is completely incongruous compared to my um, filmic um, knowledge, and that's um, Dirty Dancing. I was going to say that. Um, that was, damn it! I wish I preempted that now. Um, my my sister my sister watched that film almost nonstop and listened to the soundtrack many 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 times in her bedroom, and I can I can remember every single song and I've watched the film lots and lots and lots, and I don't know whether it's an indoctrination or not, but it's that's probably a guilty pleasure. I um yeah I very much like that as a soundtrack. Um, in terms time of my life. <laughs> um in terms of um scores or sort of general compositions anything by john williams always resonates with me i'm quite a spielberg fan fan as you know um superman star wars they they all have something different but there's still something that's integrally john williams that runs through all of the um the scores um but in terms of a single song and dave i think you'll probably agree with me on some levels on this as a single song um, mm. The John Spence Blues Explosion with Bell Bottoms at the start of Baby Driver yeah. is possibly one of my favorite starts to a film ever. 
that from yeah. start to finish, Edgar Wright has fashioned his action around the the yeah. movement and the beat of that song from the very yeah. first note to the very end. And I don't even know to this day whether I like Baby Driver as a film because I just <laughs> assume that it's a perfect film because I before those titles rolled, I just and 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 I think that 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 as a modern film is one of my favorite films possibly because of that opening number so i'd say as a single song probably bell bottoms from baby driver okay um adam what's your favorite movie set piece i was thinking about this from um lloyd being asked because i actually i actually wrote i think that question um a couple of weeks ago for lloyd um i don't think i really knew what i what I was asking with it. Did I mean a um a huge um action sequence? Did I mean something that was sort of twee that just impressed me very much? You know, am I talking about you know the the car chasing bullets? Am I talking about the That was um, gonna be my guess for yours. Was it? I swear to um, God. I was I, was I talking about like just oh um was I talking about you know the 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 Dark Knight bat pod chase, um, or is it something as simple as you know, Merry Christmas Emporium, um, in uh, the end of uh, It's a Wonderful Life? But, um, can actually, I have one more guess before you say it? Can I have one more guess? Go on, Steve McQueen, the great escape on his bike, jumping uh, over the air. The the reason the reason why I've chosen the one that I have is because it's so different to the sort of thing that um, I'd like to project as a movie fan, right. um, and it's a, a real guilty pleasure. But it's also there's a there's a second level to it, which hopefully will make sense. <laughs> um, my um, guilty pleasure favorite set piece is actually Tango and Cash, um, the start of the movie um, when sliced alone parks his car across the highway and the truck comes towards it uh, and he takes his gun and he empties out the, the bullets and puts a new set of six but spins um, the barrel and then aims it at the truck um, and fires it and then basically they put on the brakes and the two two guys in the truck come flying out and they're landing at his feet and he, he says, you know, do the honours or cuff yourself. Um, yeah. I remember that as an opening scene to a movie, an action movie being to me, absolutely perfect. And I was gutted because I watch quite a lot of um, um, foreign films and, and martial arts films particularly. I'm a fan of Jackie Chan. And for some reason, I hadn't seen Police Story. And I watched Police Story about six or seven uh -huh. months yeah. after I first saw um, Tango and Cash. And that scene is an ex absolute mm. carbon copy, an exact almost moment-to-moment -moment copy of a scene in Police Story where Jackie Chan does exactly the same, I think, with maybe a bus rather than a, a truck. Um, but it is almost perfectly uh, the same. So my favourite set piece is a copy of a previous set piece. But, but it's how, how did they Cash. make it better, Adam? How did they make that scene better? Um, because it had sliced alone. <laughs> and he goes and he shoots he shoots the tanker and goes and says what? Oh look, it's snowing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Winner. <laughs> yeah, absolutely brilliant. I'm gonna shock you now. I'm not I'm not sure I've seen Tango and Cash. But I might have seen it. I actually might have seen it. You know, I'm sure. it's got a 
Is it Kurt Russell as well? <laughs> Ray Tango has cost me seven casquillion dollars. Gabriel Cash has cost me two thousand. I hate them both equally, and I will ha- seek vengeance both with equal pressure to both. Like, all right. Well, let's take care of Ray Tango and just do whatever with Gabriel Cash. Okay, thanks for that answer, Adam. Pleasure. Uh, the next, well, my next question. Welcome. You know, next, <laughs> um, do you have a, a female movie crush? My um my my movie crush is uh, Kelly LeBrock. Hmm. Isn't she like seventy? Yeah, I'm not talking about now. I'm talking about when I was younger. Um, um, because I remember when I was uh, a kid, when I saw Weird Science for the first time, she was um, my idea of the perfect woman. Um, not my movie crush now, but um, certainly, yeah, from years gone by, Kelly LeBrock. Um So next question, Adam, is what's your preference, Marvel or Star Wars? Okay, so um, Star Wars. And... The main reason for that is because I don't think I would have got into films as much as I did if it wasn't for the original Star Wars saga. I think I've watched those three films so many times um, that they sort of forged my view of cinema. Um, And I suppose it means that I've not been so critical when I've watched, you know, the the new films, Um, even when I've watched phantom menace and attack of the clones um i've still looked at that with the sort of golden age of you know childhood cinema in you know in my eyes um i think the marvel movies are brilliant i think modern um modern classics i think if you ask any kid who's like seven or up now that's seen any of those films or seen the Star Wars films without shadow of a doubt they're all going to say the Marvel films I think they're brilliantly made I think they are of the time now but when you think about industrial light and music um, is that right? Industrial light and music? (laughs) Magic? Magic. (laughs) Industrial light and music when you look at when you look at industrial light and magic um and how they've developed from um star wars and all of the groundbreaking stuff they've done i don't think a lot of cinema um and special effects would have been possible without star wars so i suppose there's some there's something in me that just says yeah i think ultimately i'm always going to prefer star wars i love the mandalorian i think that that's a an attempt at bringing star wars more towards the marvel thematic styling um mm. but still trying to stay true to the you know star wars canon um there's a lot of stuff associated with star wars as well that we you know we don't see because you know there's countless books and comics associated with it that yeah. explains more that the movies maybe maybe have missed and i think people have been annoyed by the t- constant tweaking of george lucas um to you know various scenes such as the infamous who shot first with uh han solo um and han walking on jabba's tail in the yeah uh, sleeps it, before they leave yeah. it's just exactly well done, George. but i think but but i think the thing that i i looking back i liked about it is the fact that they use models the fact that it wasn't shiny and new things were yeah. a little bit gritty that 
that things in the future or things in a galaxy far, far away, it wasn't just shiny new stuff. It was this is people experiencing real things elsewhere. And it, I didn't think for a moment when I saw the first three films that anything wasn't real. You know, yeah. that, you know, you watch the Phantom Menace and everything's CG. It's obviously CGI. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they they found a nice they found a nice balance with those those old movies, which they've lost a lot of that with the the remake. I think when they've moved on to you know seven, eight, and nine, they've they've caught some of that again, and they've they've managed to capture some of that magic. But yeah, Star Wars. Thank you for your comprehensive response. My blood is really pleased with you. <laughs> just just go just go man just go okay so next question's a biggie for fans of 80s movies such as yourself so the question is stallone or schwarzenegger um i'd say um and it's not an easy answer for me actually i'd say stallone um the rocky films weirdly more rocky three and rocky four even though rocky and Rocky Two were much better films. Um, those films were were just part of my growing up. You know the um, the montage um, training scene in Rocky Four, yeah. particularly, yeah. was something yeah, that I watched over well, and over again. Background. Yeah, and 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 I would I would rewind that and watch that over and over again, just that like, yeah. one scene, and keep watching it on repeat. Um, and I remember the sort of the the same thing resonating all the time that it's you know. We know that he's not going to be a very good fighter until Adrian gets herself into the frame of mind that she's going to support him and then it's going to all work out. Um, but also, I think um, Stallone's other movies like um, Cliffhanger, Demolition Man, Over the Top, um, were all films that, as I was growing up, at exact time that they were suited for me, um, just, just, just came about. Whereas um, I think Schwarzenegger's um, Predator and Terminator 2. I was a little bit older when I was enjoying them, so I think I'd already been blooded on Stallone. So I say, uh, sorry to Arnie, but Sylvester Stallone. So the final question uh, of this section is name a film you've watched without knowing anything about it. Get out. <laughs> now. Yeah, good answer. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, get get out. Um, which is uh, Jordan Peele directed. Um, and I only knew Jordan Peele from Key and Peele. Um, and even then, I hadn't really seen much by way of his comedy. So I didn't know what it was. I just remember somebody saying, "You really need to see this film. It's an absolutely exceptional piece of filmmaking." I didn't know anything about the story. Um, I didn't even. I think I, I think I might have known that Daniel Kaluuya was in it. Um, but I didn't know what role he had. I didn't know how significant he was, whether he was a major or a minor character. And actually, the reason why um, I mention it is um, I just think it's, it's one of the best films that I've seen that I didn't have a starting point um, when I turned it on. Um, I watched it on my own in the dark about 11 o'clock at night, probably the best and worst time to watch a film like that. And I was absolutely enthralled the whole way through. Trading Places is our last regular feature of this week's show. It's where we recast this week's movie if it was remade in present day using current actors. We're going to go through a number of different characters in the movie and we're going to see who each of us chose in each role. 
starting off with the main character of Rick Deckard. Lloyd, who would you have cast in that role? Um, it would be Ryan Gosling, but Blade Runner 2049 was made, so we can't have him. So I've gone for Oscar Isaac. Good call. Um, I think we'll be able to play it pretty well. It could be dry. It can be funny. Um, yeah, that's my choice. Okay, Adam? Um, I had a choice of two. I was thinking um, slightly sort of darker uh, side of Deckard would be Robert Pattinson, uh, who's the, the new Batman. Um, but ultimately, I have gone with somebody who I think currently is pretty much as close to Harrison Ford as possibly can be. Um, and that's Sebastian Stan, who is the Winter Soldier. Mm. People, some people say he's closer yeah. to Mark Hamill. And Harrison Ford. I've With seen the that as the rumours. Yeah, the yeah, current yeah. rumours of a remake. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, so Dave, moving on yours? to my choice. Moving on to my choice of Rick Deckard. I primarily cast this based on, I think, um, physical looks, age, ability to in inhabit the role, presence. So I went for James Franco. Mm. Yeah. Good call. It'd be an interesting choice, wouldn't it? Yeah. Okay. Um, so moving on to Roy Batty, uh, leader of the Replicants. Lloyd, who would you have cast? I've gone a bit left field, um, and I've chosen someone who can inhabit the role, um, a credible actor, and a talented actor who can actually get across the the speeches, the monologues, and still embody the character. And I reckon with a bit of sort of Linda Hamilton Terminator 2 training, could do the role as well, the physical role. So I've gone for Jodie Comer. Oh, Brill from uh, Killing Eve. Yeah, from Killing Eve. I think, I know Roy is a sort of hardcore killer and action person and jumping over things and lifting things, but I think, I still think Jodie could do a fantastic job of doing it. Brilliant. Okay. Yeah. Okay, Adam, who's your choice? Um, I looked at, you know, choosing a hard man or, you know, somebody who's sort of known for their strength or, or stature. But then I was thinking that somebody that's sort of more European sounding, who's still a, a, a presence, not just from a physical perspective, but also from just the, the way they deliver themselves and they hold themselves. Um, so I went with um, Mads Mikkelsen. I think that's cool. That, yeah. um, <laughs> Yeah. Not, not just being a, a, a Bond bad guy, but also his role um, playing Hannibal Lecter in the, the TV series. He was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, spot. I, I had him. I had him yeah, at one point as well. Point yeah, it's a well. good choice. Dave? Yeah, so, so my choice for Roy Batty, um, I was thinking about the kind of tall, blonde hair, blue eyes, kind of uh, acting ability. Um so I went for Paul Bettany, who oh, yeah. That's good. I think it was based slightly on, he was in a, a movie back in the 90s, 2000s called Gangster Number One. Gangster Number One, yeah. Oh, yeah. I can't think of him playing many other villains, but I just remember him in that being really, really convincing as a villain. So I think that was part of it as well. Yeah, I think he, he was in a couple of films like um, Legion and Priest as well, where he played kind yeah. of dark characters. So, yeah. He was also in, um, what's that, um, The Da Vinci Code. He played like a, a 
priest yeah. and that, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. He was yeah. kind of like yeah. really yeah. white skin and like self flagellating. Yeah, that might have had something to do. Yeah. Okay, so the next one we're going to talk about is Pris, played by Daryl Hannah in the original movie. Lloyd? I think I've gone for the obvious choice, and I'll be surprised if you've got anything different because she is, well, Pris is the pleasure model, but sort of a gymnast and can move around and still like pretty bloody tough. Um, so I've gone for the the proper sort of good-looking, blonde, mainstream actress of the moment that can still pack a punch because she plays a few roles that pack a punch at the moment. And so I've gone for Margot Robbie. All right, okay. Which I, I thought call. I felt bad doing it because it feels like it's the obvious choice. I could see her with the black spray paint across, which is probably Suicide Squad, you know, through and through, isn't it? So, um, yeah, I did feel it was a bit of an indulgent choice, but yeah. That was well, my, I, I did um, struggle with. I, I struggle with it as well, um, but yeah, Margot Robbie. I I had somewhere in my head that because um, I think of Press as kind of a tall, angular, gym, gymnastic type character. Um, I was thinking of somebody tall or, or somebody who gives off that kind of prowess. Um, so I was looking at Elizabeth Debicki at first from um, mm. Widows, um, and. Also, um, the person I actually ended up settling on, although it was a, a choice between the two, was uh, Gemma Arterton. I think she'd uh, do a really good job as being. Is she, is she tall? Chris. How tall is Gemma Arterton? I don't know, but there's just something about her that I just think would would match that role. Probably turn out that she's five foot three, um, <laughs> yeah. but uh, yeah, just I think maybe it was how she was in um, the Bond movie um, where she was. Impressive in that kind of, I don't know. Um, I just think she'd be a good press. Yeah. Okay. So for my choice, um, maybe maybe obvious, maybe not. Um, Daryl Hannah, Amazonian kind of Kill Bill. You've got Daryl Hannah. You've got Uma Thurman. You know, I'm a fan of Uma Thurman. Um, Uma <laughs> Thurman, though, obviously, is way too does old have, now. Does she have a restraining order against you, Dave? <laughs> Stop writing me letters. Um, I, I think it's I think it's about to expire relatively soon. Um, so so obviously Uma, Uma Thurman turns up dead in a week's time. <laughs> Uma Thurman obviously too old to play that character now, but fortunately Uma Thurman uh, has got a daughter called Maya Hawke, who's also in Stranger yeah. Things, and she's got the kind of high. For me, Pris is a. I find it a relatively awkward character. Um, in the way that Daryl Hannah plays it, um, Coy, maybe part of that is put on um, due to the kind of relationship that she needs to have with Jeff Sebastian. But yeah, I thought My Hawk would be quite a good choice in that role. Yeah, I like that. Good. That's cool. So we're going to move on to Terrell now. So, Lloyd, who did you choose? <laughs> right. I had as a sort of left field one, Lee Evans. <laughs> The comedian, because <laughs> I saw him in those glasses. If he could do a half decent job of acting, I thought he'd pull it off quite well. Um, but then, anyway, discounted him. Went for another British actor, and went for uh, for Daniel Craig. I thought he could, okay. he, you know, he could deliver the role quite well. I, th I think he'd be. Um, I don't know. It was just an interesting thought I had when I when I pictured him more and more as Tyrell. He had to have the glasses on though to make it work. Um, I just thought, you know, I mean, he, look, he, like, he, look like Elton John. 
Well, we'd have to have Thingy then, wouldn't we? Uh, what's his name? Aaron Edgerton. From, um, yeah. I did think, what, 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 I considered him for I something recently. I thought Aaron Edgerton at one point as well. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. So Daniel Craig for Tyrell. See, I Adam. I struggled a bit. Yeah, I struggled a bit on this. I think he he was my most difficult choice, um, and I think a lot of that was framed by the fact that Jared Leto is is Wallace mm. in the, the remake, sort of standing on the shoulders of of Tyrell. Um, so it, it made me wonder about what age Tyrell would be on a remake. I think Hollywood pro- probably would have him younger than um, yeah. he was in in the original. If, if, if they want the replicant it, thread as well, they would have it yeah, that way, wouldn't yeah. they? They'd probably be able to. That, yeah, that would be more budget. Yeah, so I think I'd if I was choosing somebody younger, I'd choose Rami Malek. Um, but then I was thinking, mm-hmm. no, actually, I would I would still keep somebody a, a bit older. I, I thought of Steve Buscemi in terms of looks, but I didn't think he'd have the right feel. Um, no. So I ended up settling on um, Willem Dafoe because uh, I think that he's yeah. got that kind of steeliness um, and could definitely carry the the role off without being too overpowering as a character, yeah. you know, somebody that Roy would be able to quite easily physically overcome at the same time as being, you know, that intellectual. Yeah. I like that. It's funny. I, like I that thought of him as well. It's funny how we all kind of go through the same kind of lists of actors. Yeah. yeah. What's yours, so Dave? I think, I think my choice, it's probably not too, too dissimilar to yours, Adam. It was more kind of like a feel, an aura, um, probably about the right age as well. I think um just thought he could bring a, a power to, a, some kind of power to the role so i went for gary oldman oh great yeah 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 i see that i could see him being yeah. good yeah like that so gary um, oldman from leon or gary oldman from <laughs> um the Fifth dark Element. <laughs> just gary oldman we'll have him okay <laughs> or his sister from uh, EastEnders. EastEnders, yeah. Lava. Big I mean, man. Or old man. Leela, Leela something. Limo. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Lilo. Lilo. Um, <laughs> Lilo. Okay, so the final role that we're going to recast is uh, the role of Rachel, which I personally found probably the hardest one to do. I don't know. How you two felt so, um, Lloyd. I had a couple for Rachel, um, and I decided on Saoirse Ronan. Oh, nice. um, yeah, yeah, good call. I think she could provide whatever look we were going for with Rachel. She's a really accomplished actress now, she's done a lot of things, even from when she was very young, she's been a brilliant actor. Um, she could play it. More sort of uh, subdued, more of like the classic Rachel, the Sean Young Rachel, or she could, we could up it a bit. She's got that range and that broadness um, of both skill and acting and look as well. So I think I've knocked it out of the park with that one. <laughs> to say the truth, it's not a bad, it's not a bad choice. I think the difficulty I have, and I assume from having chats with Dave about this previous film so many times, is um, Alicia Vikander in X. Machina yeah. Um, yeah. was so good in that role and that's such a good film that the idea of a, a, a an attractive replicant that has been developed beyond the other previous replicants, she would be sort of perfect. The only problem is, obviously, yeah. 
that she's already mm-hmm. that character in Ex Machina. So she's and that character was probably influenced a little bit by Rachel. Yeah, yeah, exactly, absolutely. Um, I looked at um, who would work well with my decades of Sebastian Stan. Maybe I thought too long and hard about you know that kind of styling, Marvel styling. Emily Van Camp. Tessa- <laughs> you got four. Well, I looked. I looked at Tessa Thompson at one point, um, but I think perhaps she doesn't have the. Well, I know we haven't seen her in everything, um, and and she's probably got much greater range. But the sort of the vulnerability of um, Rachel, I think, possibly yeah. means that I I'm, I've moved away from her. Um, but somebody I've been watching in um, the Queen's Gambit, you mentioned it earlier, Lloyd, um, Anya Taylor Joy. I just think she's absolutely astounding actress, um, yeah. and I think that she would she would cover all the bases um, and be very good. Um, against my other cast members, so I would say Anya Taylor Joy. That's good. Spot on that, Dave. Okay, so my choice of Rachel um, is probably based almost entirely on on, on physical appearance. I was Jennifer Aniston. That's Courtney Cox. Um, I, I was I was looking for someone that's got that kind of classical beauty kind of look. I think. Um, as I said, I really did struggle with it. In the end, I went for uh, Lily Collins. Uh, I'm not oh, yeah. sure if, yeah. if you know who Lily Collins is, yeah. but it was just it was just a kind of uh, comparison, I suppose, between Sean Young and, and 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 the way she looked and that kind of classical beauty thing. As I said, yeah, yeah, I, I can see that. Great I don't choices. know about her acting range. I haven't seen her in enough things to know if she could really portray Rachel. Mm. To, yeah. to the level which it deserves, but yeah, certainly style wise, styling wise, yeah, spot on. Okay, so as I mentioned at the start of the segment, um, we're going to be running some polls on Twitter for which of our choices uh, you prefer. So, um, get on Twitter, let us know what you think. Uh, alternatively, leave comments uh, on YouTube for us, uh, let us know what you think of our choices and who you would have uh, cast in those roles. So that's the end of this week's episode of The Great Movie Show. If you're watching us on YouTube, I'd like to remind you to like, subscribe, and click the notifications bell so that you receive a notification next time we upload a video. I'd like to remind you that the podcast is available on all popular podcast platforms. And if you are listening to the podcast, why don't you come over and check us out on YouTube or vice versa? Our socials will be listed in the description for the video. Thanks for watching this episode of The Great Movie Show where we've been talking about Blade Runner. The next episode is going to be uh, based around the 1975 Steven Spielberg classic Jaws. Just one more thing. I'd like to say thank you to Lloyd and Adam for joining me tonight. Thank you. Goodbye. Ladies. And that's a wrap. <laughs>